G'day punters and welcome to Tab's Inside 50 as per usual. Nick Quinn joined by his partner in crime, Shane Crawford. Hello Crawford, you look up and about today. Uh, we, we can just hand the microphone over and just let him go. D Harford, welcome to the show. One of the all-time greats of the Hawthorne Football Club. Went over to the Blues for a, a couple of years to help them out a little bit. Now coaches the uh, the Carlton uh, women's, women's side. Um, how do I go there? Um, now coaching Carlton's <laughs> AFLW side. Close uh, enough. So, uh, yeah, heavily involved in footy. But uh, I'll tell you what um, – you know, if you want to be up and about, get Daniel Harford on your side. And, uh, yeah, many a story out on that field with uh, this man and what he could do. Unbelievably gifted, Nick Quinn. Unbelievably gifted. And we're going to get some of those stories as well. A very warm welcome to Daniel Harford. 153 games for the Hawks, nine games for the Blues. Welcome to our soon-to-be award-winning podcast. Well, I'm sure the award's coming soon, probably after this one, Quinny. Uh, great to have your company today and, and Shane. <laughs> One of the great intros of, of all time. Very, you know very what? impressed by we, this. We might be, go back and do that. Um, yeah, a little bit jittery, but anyway. I've done some cool things in my time. Oh, I don't think this could be topped. <laughs> this is going to be very, very exciting. It's off to a yeah. great start, that is for sure. And a bit of a role reversal today. It's going to be yes. nice to see you answering the questions as opposed to asking them. I'm not comfortable in this situation, I must admit, Nicholas. I've done the asking for many years now, and the answering is not really my thing. Well, the plan of attack today is we're going to go through your illustrious career, then talk about be some short. of your exploits post-footy. So let's talk about the early days. You're an outstanding junior footballer, and I'd like to ask this question. Yes. At what age did you wake up and think, I'm going to be an AFL player? 13. Yep. 13. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was a pretty good junior, um, and I was physically developed, so I was a bit, well, I was one of those early developers who would play junior footy and, and just be able to, not monster kids, but... I knew how to read the play. I was fairly skillful when I was physical. So I knew that there was an opportunity. If I was any good, if I could keep that going, um, I'd, I'd get a good look at playing AFL footy. So you say you're physical. So what happened when you came to Hawthorne? <laughs> I stopped growing. <laughs> no. This was the thing. No, I, got, I, was this, I was this high. I was a little bit skinnier back then. I was this high when I was 14. I was 5 of 10, So why did you develop so early in your... In your life, was it a, like a diet? Was it living nah. out Bandura way? You know, was <laughs> yes. it the, the mountain air off Whittlesea? The Diamond Valley is a very, very <laughs> good growing area, as you know, Shane. Uh, no, I don't know. It's just a genetic thing, Family I suppose. Genes, yeah. yeah, Dad was a, a stocky sort of dude, um, so I, was, I sort of fell into that mould a bit. There's no real rhyme or reason for it, but I was, yeah, I was physically mature fairly early and then stopped at about 14. Parade College. Yeah? Yep. That's where uh, Daniel did his trade, Parade College. Very famous Parade College, which was always heavily connected to the Collingwood Football Club. So you probably thought... You know, Collingwood Football Club would know all about me. Well, I was hoping they did. Yeah, because I was a mad Collingwood supporter. My mum um, in, initiated that with us as kids. Dad was a North Melbourne supporter, and I don't know why he didn't get any luck, any traction with us. There's five of us. I'm one of five. There's no one. And in the end, my sister, I think, felt sorry for him uh, and ended up barricading for North just to stay in with the good books. I reckon getting the will, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sort of long, the long play for her. Uh, but we would we'd go to the footy Vic Park every week with mum and her sisters and my brothers and cousins as well. And we'd stand in the outer of Vic Park in the left forward pocket, watch Dakes do his, do his thing. And if we weren't there, we'd go and watch, I'd go and watch Parade the next week at, who were playing at home. We used to live at the back of the college. So I'd go and watch Parade play in the Amos um, if the Pies were playing away. 
It's a good way to do it. So you lived and breathed footy. You loved playing your footy. You were going yeah. very well. So your junior footy career was all about that. And there was lots of representative footy involved as well, including captaining the Vicks. Yeah, that was the Teal Cup, the under-17s, the old Teal Cup. These days, the national championships. Um, yeah, that was cool. We, we had some great... I came through an era of some really good footballers. Um, so we would dominate carnivals. The under-15s are schoolboys. We didn't lose a game. Um, my first year of Teal Cup, we won the championship with an awesome team. We, like, we might have lost a game that series. Who, who were some of the uh, players in that team that you know come to mind that we would all know? Oh, Chris Scott was in the first year. Yes. Um, in, in my, my Teal Cup year. Um, Chris Scott, Justin Murphy. Remember Justin Murphy? Yep. yep. A terrific player um, back in the old days. Shannon Grant, Anthony Rocker, Jeff White. Um, oh, Blake Carousella played in the second year with us. I reckon in the second year we had about 20 of the 22 drafted. Wow. It was a big year. That's incredible. And we don't, we, we gave up, I think, four or five goals for the week in four games. Like we just couldn't get scored against, and we just pound teams into submission. It was hilarious. So you're obviously an outstanding junior from day dot. When you went and played in those representative teams, did that give you more confidence that how good you were? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think when you play against the best and you can perform, you always get a bit of confidence out of that. And that was certainly something that I, I garnered through, through those years where I could match it with them because I could play local footy and, and – go okay there but until you come up against the best you don't know you were good at other sports as well like uh, you were good at cricket weren't you love cricket in fact cricket was my love my childhood love footy I was really good at but cricket was my love. If I could have played Test cricket for Australia, I would have loved to have done that. All rounder, or were you uh, right well, bat? Or? As the see again, you go back to the physical maturity as a young fella. You do everything. You just dominate yes. proceedings. So I was the opening bowler, opening bat. I was just one of those kids who used you to were hog everything. Greedy, yes. <laughs> I'm opening to bowling. Hog I'm batting first. I love I love batting. Bowling's not really. It's just a part time thing. But I love to bat. Yeah. Do you know when I was at a <laughs> you were a good college? Cricket, huh? No, no, no. I, I wasn't. I was a yes, batter. I won the fielding award in year 12. <laughs> Nobody that's wants to win that. <laughs> Nobody wants that. Exactly. So that sort of explains my cricket career. No, I've seen just, you play. You're okay. No, I was just hanging in there, you know. <laughs> Left arm flat out over the wicket, whatever comes at you. Here's another pie. <laughs> the fielding award. Who came up with that? Is that for, like the encouragement? Well, no, Ray Carroll, the famous uh, Assumption College coach, he... Uh, for football, but also cricket. I think he felt sorry for me. <laughs> um, I think he felt sorry because I tried hard. I'd run hard to try and stop you you know, the boundaries. But, yeah, I won the fielding award. <laughs> That's a great award. Where is that award these days? Have you still got the trophy? I don't know. Probably in mum's shed <laughs> somewhere. But yes, uh, I might get it and live. polish it up one day just to show the kids. Why do all trophies live in mum's shed? Or mum's cup? Mum's got a cupboard or a box in the in the cupboard somewhere with all the trophies. Don't look at me when it comes to trophies. I think you two need to have this conversation <laughs> well, between the two of you. You know, knowing you, you've probably got your own little setup, your huge crib uh, no. hidden away from the house. So you've got a spot for everything. But Quinny and myself, we don't... <laughs> We don't operate like that. We've got a little shed that we just stick, stick everything in, and that's how we operate. Is that how it works, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have more trophies than you could poke a stick at. No, no, no. He doesn't even know where his Brownlow is. You serious? No, no, I do. Oh, I no, do. that's Bartel. Oh, Bartel. <laughs> oh, well, that's no surprise with Bartel. Goodness me. If you if there was no AFL footy, how far could you have gone with your cricket? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I maybe could have played district, district cricket. Maybe yes. Snuck a state game in somewhere. I was never going to play cricket for Australia. I would have loved to have. Um, I played a few state squads as a kid and played Dowling Shield and all those sort of things along the way. So really loved it. It was the thing that I would have 
given anything to do as play cricket for Australia. You were touted as the potential number one draft pick in the 1994 National Draft, but unfortunately injury struck. I broke my leg in a prelim final in, um, in the Under-18s competition. Um, so, which was devastating on two parts. I didn't get to play in a premiership the week after, and then I didn't know what was going to happen to my draft situation. So it was it was a bit of a blow. I mean, you don't want to break your leg any time, but um, at that time for me, it was a, was a bit scary. I didn't know what was going to happen on the back of that. But yeah, it was it was a problem because I didn't because you know how you're going to recover. It was the first time I had a really major injury. Um, it was a heavy break too, wasn't it? Yeah, it was you can nasty. Break one. your leg and you can break your leg. Yeah, it was a nasty one. It took a long time to heal. Um, even when I, I got drafted, I was expecting to get back in the swing of things pretty quickly, but it took a long time to get rolling. So it was it was a bit of a stressful situation for a bloke who'd never had to really deal with that. And physically, the ramifications are obvious, but mentally, how hard was that as well for a young athlete who has been primed to go play AFL footy for the best part of a decade on the eve of it to potentially, in your mind, maybe have it snatched away? Yeah, no, it was. Um, I spent a couple of weeks in a bit of a flat spot I must I remember that um, and again not going through anything like that before um, and not having the real coping mechanisms to deal with it because you had never experienced it it was a bit of a challenge I must admit but then you work out and you have the your chats to all the recruiters and the build up and they're still going to draft a broken leg you'll be right in six six weeks three months six months whatever it might be we'd like to draft you for 10 15 years so when you get your head around that um, the thought of it not being uh, the, the world of A for footy not being a part of you you'll short-term future sort of disappears and you go, oh, things will be okay. What, what about the messaging there? It's like, oh, we're going to have you for 10, 15 years. So you think, oh, I'm around. Whereas these days, you probably don't want to say that to the young kids. It's like, you're going to have a short window to show us if you want to be here yeah, and what true. you've got. Maybe back that, then it was a bit different. Oh, we got you for a long time, you know, so yeah, well, I think, learn your craft. I think they um, they worked out I was pretty stressed about it and they might just yep. tried to soften the blow a bit and ease my pain, so to speak. Who were the other teams uh, before um, Hawthorne, before the pick? Um, you were number what? Number eight. Number eight. So obviously there was a few teams before and they would have had you right up there as probably their number one pick. So breaking a leg, you know, does scare a lot of teams off. So... Who were some of the teams that you thought you may have been a chance to get to? Oh, I thought I was going to Sydney. Jeff White. Jeff White was number one, and he went to Fremantle, and, and there was he was always. I think he was always going to be number one, um, and then it was Sydney at two and three. Oh. So I thought I was going to Sydney. Ron Barassi came into my house with with the recruiting manager and. Like, Ron Barassi's in your house. He's sitting on my couch. He's talking to me about coming to play at Sydney. And he, bloody hell, this is pretty cool. Did he have a red wine? Because he, he loved uh, a red wine later remember. on in his <laughs> life. My brother, my brother went to Sydney for a couple of years and Ron Barassi was his coach. But uh, I, th- I don't think he minded a, a red wine every now and then. I used th- that's when he used to fly down from Melbourne. Um, do a bit of coaching, yeah, yeah. maybe take over on a Thursday, hang around till Saturday, <laughs> and then head back. Sneak so a couple of reds in. It was a bit different then. You, you could have been playing with Tony Lockett, uh, Paul Kelly, well, would it, yeah, Brett Kirk. That's right, some of the greats. Um, and it would have been look, it would have been pretty cool. I was a bit. I would have preferred to stay in Melbourne. I was because the morning of the draft, I was still going to Sydney. Number, I was going to Sydney at pick two was all the yeah. all the mail. Um, Ricky Barham was the recruiting manager at Collingwood, the great Collingwood ring, wingman. He was the recruiting manager at Collingwood, and I had a bit to deal with him um, through that year, that 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 draft year. And he was pretty keen. He rang me the morning off. He said, "We're going to draft you at pick nine. Oh. We, we reckon you're going to slip a bit." So I'm hearing Sydney are going to pick me up at two, and then Ricky's ringing me saying, we'll get you pick nine. And as a Collingwood supporter, you're thinking, this is the greatest day in the world. Like, how good is footy? I'm going to get drafted by the Magpies, going to play Vic Park, all the family will love it. Yeah. It's going to be fantastic. 
Um, so he says, we'll pick you, we'll take you at nine. So, all right, so just hold your fire, hold powder dry, get through, you'll be okay, we'll get you at nine. It was the best phone call ever. And then I, we, I went to the draft. It was the second year of a televised draft, and I went there, and you know, you get the nerves, you've got a broken leg, and you're hobbling up onto the, onto the stage and that sort of stuff. And, um, and Hawthorne buddy called my name out. And what? 15 <laughs> seconds, I was devastated. What? I was because they they had pick eight and Collingwood had pick nine, and I once I got through the first seven, ah, no dramas, I'll be a magpie. And bloody Hawthorne called my name. Out. <laughs> oh, you not spoken to them in the lead up at all? Well, I got a phone call the night before from Chris Pelkin, the um, the recruiting manager, just to wish me good luck. That was the only contact I'd had. I think there were sixteen teams in the competition that Give year. Give away nothing. I like it. Sixteen teams in the competition, Crawf. I had conversations with fifteen of them. Why, why are you going to not hold on? Tell everyone what's going on because everyone talks. All the news gets out there. Just oh, shut your mouth. You know. <laughs> well, Wish, good luck they... with the draft. You know, we don't know how it's going to go, and then pick you up. I love it. It worked but, out all right. Sydney we had a couple of picks, and Fitzroy had a couple of picks too. Um, and life was pretty tough with, yep. with Fitzroy, so missing them was was always going to be a good result. I thought at the time, and turns out it, it was. Would have saved you a bit of travelling. And then the, the bombers had a pick. Well, that's true. <laughs> then the bombers had a pick, and I didn't want to play this. Now I've been calling a supporter. <laughs> Played Essendon. We'll get to the Bombers. There's still the bombers. no love loss between you and the Bombers. <laughs> but you think about it. like So you've got – you go to the horse sales and you've got an unbelievably bred horse that's shown unbelievable ability at the breeze-ups. Oh, what a breeze-up sale. <laughs> it's like, hey, this this is a lock, you know. Like, even if it doesn't get to where we need it to get to, it's still going to get somewhere. And then he rocks in, you know, on crutches. It's a pretty severe break. So all the clubs would be crapping their dacks. Like, nah, we're going to get this guy. He's got two good legs, too much of a risk. So, you know, it must have been unbelievable times, really. And no wonder you were very nervous about what was going on because you just don't know what the clubs are thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it was um, it was a bizarre period. Um, and a lot of kids would go through it and have that, that whole draft experience. It is a bizarre experience because you your, your, your whole future and the, what you've dreamed of for so long is just in somebody else's hands and you've got no control over it. It's, it's quite unusual. And it was a great draft as well. We mentioned Jeff White going one. The Sydney Swans took Anthony Rocker and Shannon Grant with their two picks yep. at the top. And then Scotty Lucas went to the Bombers as well. So best case scenario, you stay in Victoria and you go to a Hawthorne team that hey, were coming off a good year. They were sixth in 1994 and then Wayne Carey turned on that magic to knock them out of the finals. What are your memories about the first time you walked into Waverley? <laughs> well, it was Glenferry Oval back then. and We were back at Glenferry and Crawford was dominating proceedings on and off the field there and I walked in. Well, I didn't walk in. I crutched in. I crutched in. You know, John Hook was the footy manager. Hooky introduced all the draftees so he met me at the car. Somebody must have taken me. I don't know how I got there. Couldn't drive. Um, so he met me in the car and I've come out and I'm on the crutches and I take get through the door and a few steps down to the, the main area of the gym there at uh, Glenferry Croft and I'm just talking to Hooky and he said this is this is the gym area and you see the weights over there and the locker rooms around the corner we'll take you there in a second and he sees Jason Dunstall uh, who was captain at the time and um, and he calls him over he goes Jason come here come and say day." And I'm sitting there, this is Jason Dunstall. Like, I've been watching this bloke for years, Domino. Like, he's one of my favourite players. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teammate, and he's calling out, John's calling him over to say good day. And I am petrified. I'm, I'm sitting there with a, I'm not, I'm standing, I'm a crutch with a broken leg. I'm thinking, what's he thinking about this idiot kid who's broken his leg and he's now a part of his team? He probably hates me. And he came up and he said, he shook my hand and said, G'day, I'm Jason Dunstall. And the, what about these? The first words I ever said in the halls of, <laughs> of Hawthorne Football Club. 
I said, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then immediately went beetroot red and thought, oh, the whole world's going to collapse on me and I'm never going to be invited back to this club ever again. That was the first words I ever said at the Hawthorne. There you go. Well, well, I, 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 it's funny because you don't remember a lot of people coming in. You know, you just sort of footy life. There's always players coming through. But I actually remember half – Wandering f- uh, through the first stop, maybe because he had the crutches as well, but <laughs> it's hard to miss. He was confident. <laughs> like normally, the young kids come in, um, you know, you don't say a word. Like you just sort of go about your business, and not it wasn't in an arrogant way. He was just like, "How are you? Nice to meet you." Know, like it was just <laughs> this real confidence. And I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, a few of the oldies went like this. You know, Andy <laughs> Collins, he'll want to knock his head off. And, uh, you know, that's just the way everyone operated. You know, you just get on with your work and, you know, you, d- you don't talk too much, especially if you're a young kid coming through. But I do. I can still remember the first time um, Half came through the doors and, and the influence that he had straight away. It's like, hey, Half's here. And, and we know he's got the crutches. He's saying hi. He's got a big smile on his face. And, you know, all the others who are first, Years were shitting themselves, <laughs> standing in the corner, going, "What do we do next? What do we do? We're not going to talk to anyone until they talk to us." And how did that confidence go down with some of the older players? Uh, look, they had some challenges at times because <laughs> <laughs> you're coming from an era too, like that that era of Hawthorne through the mid '80s and late '80s and, and early '90s was such success and built on hard work and grind and grit and you know just having to work their rings off. And and there, it was it was an era of you didn't say anything to you to you're spoken to particularly if you're a kid. And I, I had no interest in that. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I was, I always thought I was better than anyone, but I just wanted to play and I wanted to show them I could play. And I wanted them to show them that I was, I was worthy of being a part of their, their crew. So it wasn't so much I was, I was better. I just wanted to show them and to let them know that I wasn't, wasn't fearful, I wasn't intimidated, and I could play. And that came out a little bit like that sometimes where I probably did it you know, as a young kid. I've got no idea what I'm doing. Um, the, perhaps the wrong way a few times. And I, I copped a few clips along the way. But that was all right. That was just straighten me up and get me into the, the world of AFL footy at the time. Who but gave I, you some clips? Oh, Colo. <laughs> Colo was, was very, very clippage. He gave me a lot of clippage through the journey. I remember one day in the, in the main hall, main gym area, um, I was in rehab, obviously, in that first summer. And Colo and Darren Pritchard, um, we're doing some handball drill stuff with, and it was me and a couple of other young kids and one or two others can't quite remember. But I remember we're doing this handball stuff and, and I was giving it to them because that was the <laughs> stuff I loved. The skill stuff is, was the stuff that I loved. I didn't want to do the running or the, the bikes or whatever, or the grinder, the worst machine in the history of oh mankind, the bloody grinder. So the, when the balls came out, I was up and about. And I was just giving it to the old bloke. I said, oh, I'm catching up to you, blokes. Won't be long though. I've got your spot. <laughs> oh, yes. Just to fire them. And, and Colo no. ripped me a new one on the, on the back of that. He didn't do it in front of everyone, which was a credit to him. He just pulled me aside at the end of that and said, listen here, young fella. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the year before, I, that was my first training session. I punched on with Colo, you know. He thought I was going to take his position. I didn't even say a word. So you can imagine Daniel Harford coming in going, oh, mate, come on, get your hands right, because he's a two-touch player, Colo, unlike half. He was one-touch bang. Um, so, you know, you have guys like Ray Jenke, um, you know, they, they don't say much, but, you know, they sit back. Anthony Condon, yeah. like they, they all don't say much. They just go to work. Whereas you get a bubbly person <laughs> like half who I absolutely love playing with and, you know, it was always, you know, you always felt better being around players like half because, you know, always up and about and, and creating great energy. 
Yeah, some of the older players. They, they, it's, and a it's, it's hard too for him. He's come in. He wants to impress, but he's got a broken leg. He's in rehab. He's not. There's no fast way through that. So he's not training with a group. He's still trying to make a, an impact. Yet he still knows that he's sidelined for six months, nine months, a year. Um, so that is that's a lonely place, and I think that's sometimes probably the loneliest place. Yeah is in rehab at a football club because you, you can't get out. You don't feel like you're a part of it. You don't feel like you're contributing, and it's it's a tough way to start your career. Yeah, it's not ideal. It is. Like, rehab's the worst place on the planet, particularly if there's not many in the group with you. I remember being a few times in, in that scenario myself as the journey went along. It's it's a horrible place because you, you want to be a part of it. That's what you do, and you're, you're distant and you're segregated from your team from what they're doing. It's a horrible place. And and the way Hawthorne or Glenfrey Over was set up, they had the gym and they had the glass so you could look out onto the oval. Mm. So you do, you had your grinder which looked onto the oval, you had your versa climber which looked oh, out onto the oval and you're watching all your teammates train the whole time. So here you are, you know, like Big Brother, an early version of Big Brother yeah. behind the glass watching your team go about it knowing that I'm not going to be out there for a long time. And I don't know, football clubs, and it's a bit different now but it's still hard to incorporate the injured players into your team. Um but even the players out there, you know, they just like, oh, no, he's injured. He's not no good to us at the moment. So that was sort of the mindset and still is the mindset at times. So it's always it's always a challenge. And we didn't have, like, a bit different these days because they're there basically all day. We were part-time athletes when I first started. We'd, we'd train and do weights in the morning and ridiculous hours. Ridiculous hours we did weights, just by the way. And then we'd come back in the afternoon and, and train. So if you weren't training out there in the field, you were just sitting behind the glass watching everyone else do what you wanted to do. And and do you know what I loved, Quinny? We'd go out there, train hard, come back in. Half was always first in the big spa. Like huge spa. <laughs> like huge spa. It's part Half of a recovery. Posied up and then Dunstall hops in and I'm like, I'm not getting in that spa with those two. <laughs> <laughs> I said, have a look at that hair over there. Popped in. I did think about getting out a few times. Well, the, the water level definitely <laughs> rose pretty quickly and it was a huge spa. It was like a 15 to 20, a 20 man spa. So much so that in the early years, this spa was so good that. Uh, some of my other teammates, uh, we'd go out, have a bit of fun, and then we'd bring some of our friends back to this big spa. <laughs> yes, why we'd have you? a spa party until uh, the football manager, John Hook, found out that we were having a bit of a spa party <laughs> uh, at the Hawthorne Football Club. We, we said it was more like a recovery It was a recovery. Session. It was a very But anyway, recovery. very relaxed at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> very relaxed. It was a very relaxing place after a game it was. <laughs> there you go, it's, the like, it's like Quinny in New Orleans on the Super Bowl trip. No, no, we're moving right along. <laughs> moving right we're missing along. many times, <laughs> After that horrific leg injury, how long have you felt yourself again? It's <laughs> uh, a good uh, good way to just get on the thank you, San Nicholas. Um, oh, a couple of months, I, I played a pre a preseason game late, so I must have been right by Feb. Um, get rolling back in there, and then and then sort of. Yeah, it felt my groove a bit because you're back playing and training and doing doing the stuff that you loved. So that was a couple of months of sitting there trying to work out what the hell this was going to look like, I must admit. But when you get back out there doing your thing, it's, it becomes pretty natural pretty quick. And not long after you're given the call up to play your first game up against Carlton, what was it like getting the notification? Uh, it was really cool. Um, it was a, I reckon it was a Sunday game because... It was an extended bench situation, I reckon, and which was a bit frustrating because I couldn't really tell anyone. I wasn't allowed to tell. Um, and I thought I might have played the week before because uh, it was not around 9 or 10, I think it was, around 10 
in the year. So I played all right in the VFL or the reserves um, up until that point. I was just waiting to get a look. And Peter Knights was a coach um, at that stage. And he, he told me the week before that I was close, and I th- before training. And I thought I might have got a look that week, but didn't. Had to put, go back and play another one. I was a bit flat about that, but played okay. And then they... He called me over on the Thursday or the Friday, wherever the training was, and said, we're going to play you, but you can't tell anyone oh. because, you, because the name you'll need to change into from for the Sunday game. So we can't tell anyone, but you're going to play. Good luck. And I was pumped. So that, I went home and told him. So I went home and told everyone. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was playing my first game. Like, first game, you got to say you're in. You know, you can't do that. You can't say don't tell anyone. You've been the sub this year. Hey, oh. First game in playing as a sub. Yeah. Not for my – but it was great. I mean, it was that opportunity you, you think – it's all come together. Like after all the, the dream of playing for so many years and you're going to get that chance, it was a pretty cool feeling. Simple question, but a fascinating one. Was it different to what you anticipated it would be? Some players said it was faster than they thought. Some people thought the noise from the crowd hit them more than they expected. Was there one little thing that stood out that you weren't expecting? Uh, I think the crowd factor was, was the biggest one, yeah. We played at, at Princess Park um, and Carlton were raging that year in 95. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it ended up being a pretty rough day, but it was it was the crowd factor and the energy that that created. I'd never experienced that before, um, so that was that took some getting used to. I, I, like I really loved it. By the end, you love it. You tap into that and it feeds you through the games. And even when you're not going well, you can f- feed off that stuff. So that was that was the biggest thing I reckon. I played on Andy McKay. Um, I came on after half time. I reckon we're getting pantsed. It wasn't a great day. It was 103 points that we lost by. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome, Daniel Harford. To AFL it was a 100-point loss. And for Peter Knights to go, you know, we're thinking of playing. Like, <laughs> obviously, the form wasn't too crash hot, so we could sneak you in. So I'm sitting there. I'm sitting on the bench for the first half just watching this all unfold, thinking, just get me out there, Knightsy. Just give me a chance. Um, and after halftime, I get a crack, and I go out there, and Andy McKay... He's, he's lining up on me. I'm playing in a forward pocket next to Dunstall, so you got no chance of getting a kick. And, and Andy McKay's playing. I mean, he was a star. I used to love watching Andy McKay defend. Um, so I knew I had a, had a rough afternoon in store, but um, I got a couple of kicks. I hit the post with my first kick. No one really claims that club, do they? But they I'm should. That. Yeah. They should. Hit the post with my first kick, um, and it was all downhill from there. <laughs> Were you playing next to Jason Dunstall? Because that's sort of where I started as well. I, and at Waverley, it was like, go and start on the 50-metre arc on the boundary. So virtually get the F out of here yep. and stay out of Dunstall's way. Pretty much. So I, was I, that was the same message as well? Yeah. Oh, was it like from Jason or yeah, from, from Jason. coaching? No, he was quite polite about it. He goes, oh, just, just push up a bit, just a bit more. <laughs> Bit more. But I'm on the wing. I'm on the wing, Jason. I'm a full back, you idiot. That's just a bit more. Just give me a bit of space. Just leading in, leading in. No, Rats coming out. But I, I think I've mentioned it on the uh, on this podcast before. But I I got told you are to get front and square to Jason yep, every time he job. drops it, and then he went on to kick a hundred that year. <laughs> and it was around seventeen. We played Fitzroy, and I got a front and square against Fitzroy. Kicked a goal. And I think in the team meetings, that's what we want you to do. That's what we've been wanting you to do all year. Oh, yeah. It took me to around 17 to actually get a front and square because he never dropped any. Well, that was the problem. There's no point getting near him because he just clunked everything. He was amazing. And amazing. as a captain, what about as a captain? Because he was, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, sometimes what do they say about meeting meeting your heroes and, you know, people that you really admire, especially in a football sense. You, you're probably off better off keeping it like that. But Jason Dunstall, how do you describe that man? 
<laughs> oh, I love Bung. I love him. See, he's, he takes a while to get he before he lets you in. He's one of those guys. Before you've got to earn yeah. your stripes to let him to let you into his world. And I, I, I don't know if you want to get in that world. <laughs> What's you like, I'm gonna need to no, get out he's of great here. company. I love Bung. Yes. Um, I don't see enough of him, unfortunately, but I do love him. But he's he's hard work early. He's not letting you in too too close too early. I remember I reckon the first two years, he wouldn't he'd grunt. And that was about it. <laughs> that, that was his communication. Yeah, that's skill. the way he communicated. Yep. Like every, like, you'd lace oh, him yeah. out, nice beautiful leads from the midfield, or give him a handball, or receive, and he'd kick a goal, and he'd just point and grunt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was it. I'm his teammate. I'm that's helping him out. Leader coming up. <laughs> but well, that, that used to happen. That used to happen. Well, actually, he wasn't that positive <laughs> uh, in the gym. You know. Yeah. It would always be some kind of heckle. You know, he's um, a funny man. He's a very humorous man, very <laughs> intelligent man. And when you're in, when he lets you in, he's awesome. Would he be a captain in 2021? Not a chance. He hates people. <laughs> 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 no, he's a good man, the bunk. He's got some quirks, but he's a great man. Now you got through your first season, and safe to say, a bit happened after that. The coach was moved on, and you're yeah. going to a 1996 season where all the talk is the Hawthorne Football Club becoming the Hellborn Dorks and merging with <laughs> Melbourne. How did you find what was a pretty eventful time on and off the field? Uh, well, it was interesting because I, I, I was only a kid still. So it was my second year. I was 18, 18, 19 coming that year. Um, and I, I understood what was happening, but I didn't really get involved in it. And I certainly wasn't as emotionally attached as that sort of previous generation of Hawthorne players who we still play with, who were really upset about it, really emotional and angry about it, uh, the possibility of the club merging. But I I didn't quite get it at that stage. I must have been quite naive to all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it would have been uh, a big change. But I just wanted to play footy. Um, And all all the teams that they'd put up for the Melbourne Dorks, um, I I made the team. Crawford, you would've were there. Been, and would have been a good team. It was would have been a bloody good team. So I sort of was in the squad of forty that they'd put in the papers, and like I wanted to be a Hawthorne one club player all the way through. But um, oh, at that stage, I didn't really get it. I didn't get the enormity of the situation. I must admit. But it was. I remember the like the teammates, the old the older guys who were playing, and and it, it did affect a lot of them, and it certainly affected the people around the club. So you could feel the vibe at the club was different. And then you had obviously the, the big meeting at the town hall and the emotion attached with that, and you know the Hawthorne p- people turning on Hawthorne greats because they they thought um, with all the information they had that their only option was to merge. So we had that stuff going on, which I hated, where you're turning on your your favourite sons and your favourite um, people in your footy club's history because they thought that was the be- in the best interest of the footy club to at least survive in part. Um, so it was it was a really difficult period for a lot of people, but I I must admit I was a bit naive and a bit blasé about it at the time. What about the last match um, of that year, nineteen ninety six against Melbourne? Yes, under lights, uh, needed to win to continue on into the finals. When you look back, that that match had it all. Like you, if you look back, uh, you never know, get a spare moment. To it's on Fox watch, Footy every second watch night. That te- uh, game. Unbelievable game. You're on fire. It's a good match to watch from a half a point of view. Dunstall kicks 100. He kicks 10 for the match. Neats kicks 7 or 8. Yeah. He's on fire. You've got Clarkson running around. I think I punch on with him at one stage. Yeah, he was tagging Johnny Platten. Um, and then you've got Todd Viney who ends up at Hawthorne. Like uh, Chris Langford at the end of the game walking off, taking off his jumper, which is very uh, unlike Chris Langford and holding it up saying, don't lose this club. So... Yeah, it, it, it was. was it, it's one of the 
their games that will go down in history, absolutely. And it was a high-scoring affair, too. It was a, a, it was a free-flowing yes. attacking game. <laughs> Even though there were some brutal moments, you copped a massive whack at one stage, I remember, just on the wing, <laughs> the outer wing there. Um, it was a free-flowing affair, but there was a lot of build-up to that, like that last game for both clubs, possibly. So there's a big build-up to it, and we had to win to be any chance of qualifying for that next week's final series. Um, so I, me- I remember the build-up to that and the energy around the club, and it was like that was the stuff that got me. I loved that stuff. Heaps of build-up, heaps of energy, some emotion in it. I'll tap into that. I'm coming with you there. So that was a really big night of footy, big crowd. Um, and you're right, Bung needed eight or nine for his hundredth. He might have needed all the ten, did he? he might have needed all, all ten to kick his hundredth, and he did. So the crowd. So all of a sudden, midway through the third quarter, last quarter. The crowd comes on the field. So this, the world's most important game for these two clubs <laughs> is interrupted. We had the Lightning a couple of weeks ago in the AFL. You've got the 100-goal celebration where there's tens of thousands of people on the ground just wanting to hang around. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> You've got to go back out there and finish that game and survive. And you beat them by a point. It was amazing scenes afterwards. Is that one of your favourite ever wins? Yep. Yeah, that one and the, and the Port Adelaide final in whatever year that was, Croft, 2000 maybe. Um, they were my two favourite games to play. Yeah, because uh, that, that was significant. I can still remember the, the merger match. Um, Dunstall kicks 100, everyone runs out onto the field. And I'm looking at these supporters. They're ripping up the MCG turf. <laughs> they're, they're ripping up bits of the turf and running off with it. I'm like, oh my goodness, we haven't, haven't finished. There's a huge pothole there now. But uh, people were different back then. They were just was, grabbing the was a bit different. everything they could possibly grab. Yeah, it was a big night. We had a good night that night. And I think the next day we needed some other game to a result to go our way. And we ended up at one of Jason's bars or something in Ringwood watching it un- unfold on the big screen, getting a few um, refreshments in just whilst not, they're not doing it. Not the Juice happening. Nightclub. Might have been Juice. <laughs> Might have been Juice, I reckon. Oh, gee. Or was there a saloon out there? Did the, Bung have a saloon out there? There was there a he saloon bar out that way. I reckon he locked off the saloon for us. Did he? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. It was a good afternoon. <laughs> Until he started singing Creep by Radiohead. <laughs> then I knew I needed to go home. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858. In 1997, you were given the number five jumper, a number with huge significance to the Hawthorne Footy Club, worn by Peter Crimmins. What was that like? <laughs> well, that was an amazing honour. And Croft um, would know the story of Crimmo really well to that point too, but an assumption legend and the, all the legacy that goes with that of the assumption. Uh, it, was, it was the biggest um, accolade I've ever been given in my life, I reckon. Been offered that number to wear it at Hawthorne. That is, that is the number that you want to wear at Hawthorne. Um, and I remember the, the story is actually quite funny because Bernie Crimmins, his brother, Doctor Doctor Bernie Crimmins was our was our doc and our nutritionist at the time, yeah, um, as well. So Bernie was Peter's brother, so he was he's our doc, and <laughs> we were lining up for skinfolds preseason um, one day, and there's a bit of a queue because it was took a little bit of time and we had to get them done in a certain afternoon or whatever it was. So I'm sitting there waiting for my turn to get get skinfolded, and then I get to. <laughs> Get to Crimo's desk, and he gets it out, gets the calipers out, starts squeezing me bits, and taking measurements. And then he says to me, um, "Do you want Peter's number?" It was a pretty flippant sort of conversation. Would you Would you like Peter's number? 
And Peter Wilson was our surgeon at the time. I'm thinking, geez, I must be fat. <laughs> I must be real fat if he's offering the surgeon's number after the first couple of sites from a skin fault. And I said, because I, I sort of immediately what I thought, gee, I must be fat. What, what do you what do you mean? I said, what do you mean? He goes, would you like to wear the number five? We, um, the family and I have discussed and we'd like you to wear the number five. Went, oh, shit. Yeah, no, yes, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, but I thought I was going for surgery to get some skin really taken off. <laughs> and then I ended up with the greatest number in the history of the Hawthorne Footy Club. It was a, it was a yeah, very cool thing. And the best part of the whole thing was that Bernie would bring in, or he brought in Peter's, or the family's scrapbooks for, for Cremo. From when he was a teenager to all the way through his career um, at Hawthorne, all the clippings, the old, old school scrapbook. And being able to go through all that and live the history of, of Peter Crimmins was really cool. I knew of Crimmins, but I didn't know the story really of, of Crimmins up until that point. Um, so to be able to live that through the scrapbooks was really cool. And then he found the audio cassettes that Crimmins would record in the car on the way home. He talked to himself and, and record it, which came out, I think, about 10 years ago, um, which was some of the most amazing audio in, in footy history, I reckon. So I got to live and learn about him and know him through all that, that little journey. So that was really cool. And it's given me a great affiliation and association with the Crimmins family all the way through and Gwen and the boys um, still love catching up together at all the Hawthorne functions and Bernie's a, a great mate has been for years so it's, it's been a really positive thing for my life let alone my footy at that time. And that's one thing Hawthorne seems to do very very well and encapsulate the history and give the current players an appreciation for it. The, the unbelievable history when you think of Peter Crimmins you know have he had testicular cancer um, whilst he was still playing at Hawthorne. Um, even when he was extremely sick and they were heading into the finals, he still wanted to be a part of that team. Yeah, you know, and that was one of the uh, the hardest decisions they ever had to make is to leave him out of the side. Um, but um, yeah, unbelievable history. And obviously, he went to uh, the boys or Sam uh, went to Assumption College uh, when I was there and. Um, you know, I, I got to know the family really well. So, yeah, it was, it was a huge honour for them to see that number running around again. And, and um, yeah, there was a lot of Hawthorne faith, faith for wanting to see that number out there. And, and Half, um, you know, did it absolutely proud. He, um, you know, the number continues on now and, and it's a part of great history. Now, we spoke earlier about your love or lack thereof for the Essendon Football Club. It still comes out when we hear you on RSN 927 and there's an Essendon conversation. You don't want to be a part You've of it. You've got to let it go, Daniel. And some of it might come back to this, going back to 1998. Coming down to the admitted to point. <laughs> that was in round 10, 1998. Was it really? The Bombers beat Hawthorne by a goal after being given a controversial goal where it clearly hit the post. And you, in a protest, 
climbed the goalpost. I did. You then reenacted <laughs> it for a skit on a footy show during the week. I did. Walk us through that bizarre circumstance. Oh, I did some stupid things in my time. Uh, I was a petulant young brat, I was, basically. No, well, he, they cheated. <laughs> Didn't they? They cheated. And they've been cheating ever since, Justin, and I've had enough. <laughs> Justin Blumfield, who I uh, always got along with really well, it, like it's, he's kicked his ball, and it's ricocheted seriously 45 degrees. It couldn't have been any sharper ricochet off the post. And the goal umpire just sitting there goes, no worries, happy days. I said, not on my watch, fella. So I had to do something about it. So everyone on the planet knew it had hit the post. Peter McKenna was even in the stands calling it. So if Peter saw it, everyone saw it. And so there was a bit of a crowd of us having a crack at the umpire, and, and perhaps I went too far. I will say I probably went too far with my treatment of the umpire at that stage. That stage. But I, I was just so annoyed because it was so clear that I thought, "What? I'm going to show him where it hit the hit the post." So I decided I was a bit of a climber. You know, the door <laughs> climb as as kids, where you get the feet and the hands. You'd wide. be great on Ninja Warrior. Yeah, yes, get me on that <laughs> um, if you can. I was a climber as a kid, so I, this was a goalpost was no problem for me because I had the nice fat padding to launch into and. So I climbed and pointed. I said, this is where it hit you, idiot. And I was into him, which was a bit aggressive. Um, but the problem was, upon reflection, it was a Twilight game. There weren't many Twilight games played back in, the, back in those days. So I'm pointing at this red mark. It was a yellow footy. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody, I'm the only one who knew that. I tweaked it before anyone else did. So nobody worked that out. But that's how stupid it was, the whole thing. Um, to climb the post but I was so annoyed and I just I knew we were close and we got done by what six points was it yeah yeah we we never beat Essendon when I was playing it just was driving me bananas and we were so close and it was, I knew it was going to make a difference so I, I got annoyed but I should probably shouldn't have berated the umpire like if, I did if you did that now you'd, you'd get suspended well, there was talk through the week. I was petrified that I was going to get suspended. There was talk through the week um, after the game that I would for, I don't know if it was bringing the game into disrepute or whatever the charge might have been, but there was talk I was going to get a week. And I was filthy that that was going to cost me a week. But I was petrified because I never wanted to be suspended. So it was it was a bit of a dramatic week. And then I did the skit on the live and kicking, I think it might have been, back in the old days. Because uh, I'm an idiot. And I'm, you, I'm, you, you I've always been happy to take the mickey out of myself. So I, I have no problem with that. But uh, yeah, took, that actually was harder because I had to stay up there while they were shooting it. You know this through telly. <laughs> I had to be up there. I was, they chained me to it. What? Because they put the ladder up and I climbed up and they chained me to it. It was a bit more of a dramatic effect <laughs> to the post. Um, but then they took the ladder away. So I'm actually, I'm having to squeeze a bit to stay up. And I've had bad groins for years, Quinny. <laughs> I didn't need this, but I'm up there for half an hour squeezing on this post because they took every different angle of the shot. Because they do in TV. But if you had to go to the tribunal, I reckon you just pull out the old footage and go, look, I was pointing. I was pointing to the red spot where you're using your low footy. You knew what was going on there. I've gone mad. I've lost the plot. I've lost Plead insanity. Look after me. 23 years later, it's good to see he's still not bothered by that decision, Crawford. He's moved on. Plumfield. Bloody Plumfield's a chew. Oh, it would have been a point anyway. Yeah, but we would have had seven point. But we would have been able to go back down. Yeah, and yeah we had set plays back then. Correct, they were very we? good. <laughs> they were very good. Did we? No, we did. I don't know. We just tried to give it to the better players. Well, I reckon that was the night you played on James Hurd, oh. and you dominated him. Was that that night? No, no, no. That would sure? have been then. Um, no. No. Was it a Waverley? Yeah. Yeah, it was then. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a day match, but anyway. It was a twilighter. It was a twilighter. It's a long time. Can I just say, um, every time I get asked, and I know you're going to ask me, Quinny, but I've jumped the gun. I actually don't know you're going to ask me, but when I get asked, who are the, the most gifted players you ever played with? And I said, Denny Harford, definitely in the top couple. 
Yeah, I know. Like, I, yeah. I wasn't going to ask that today because he's here, but you have had that, oh, yeah. that <laughs> numerous <laughs> times. No, no, no. Uh, like, his skills and... Like, when you think of Greg Williams, Brett Ratton, you know, guys who just had the ability to read the play and just find the footy, he was unbelievable, you know. So I, I was so lucky to play on ball and around him because he would go to work, he would win the footy, he'd flick it out and I'd run off. Um, <laughs> so this man had unbelievable talent. And, and when, when people go, oh, who were the most gifted players? You know, you, you think, I think of Buddy Franklin, I think of Sil Rioli, and Daniel Harford's right in that mix, which I know his head will be going oh, no, getting bit off bigger those and bigger. Too. But seriously, if you, if you look back at how clean he was and what he could do around stoppages, um, you know, we're talking to, you know, one of the very best when it comes to skills to play our game. You team up for that, did you? No, no, no. We didn't. We don't talk before we get here. That's very nice of you, Shane. Yeah. Yeah, a long way from there, as other two you mentioned, Buddy and Cyril. Boy, boy, do they bring some joy to watch playing footy. 1999, <laughs> the Hawks have some big wins, and one of them was the pre-season premiership winning the Ansett <laughs> Cup, beating Port by 47 points. Sometimes you half joke about that, but it was a serious competition, the pre-season competition. How great was winning that flag? Uh, well, it was nice for us because we hadn't won anything at that sort of generation of Hawthorne players. We'd really battled. You know, we nearly folded. And then um, we were a team that perhaps hadn't planned for the future after that unbelievable success through the late 80s and, or 80s and early 90s. So we, we'd battled. So any, any level of success was good. Um, and we were starting to build. There was a squad coming together through that period that was, was a going to be a capable footy team and that was probably the first recognition that that was possible that we could do something um, we didn't play very well for the home and away season uh, on, on the back of that that Ansett Cup victory but it was nice to have some recognition for the work that you did even though it was a pre-season competition because you're right it's a bit different back then the pre-season comp it was a bit more full on um, but it was never it was just something to have it was just a little bit of silverware to put on the, on the trophy cabinet at, at Glenferry Oval but it wasn't really the one you wanted so yeah it was nice for some recognition um, but it, it wasn't going to be enough for, for most of the squad for, for what we really wanted. You played in two of the most famous home and away games. We've mentioned one of them. It was the merger game. And the other one came up against St Kilda in round 12 of that season when yes. you were a massive 63 points down and single-handedly led by two Daniel Harford goals in the third <laughs> quarter. The Hawks came roaring back to get the win. What can you remember about that magnificent day? Oh, that was an unusual day. Like to be down by that far, leading into half time, and then <clears throat> copying a bit of a spray. But Angelo Lekas, remember that Lekas said, um, who was uh, one of our great players back then, one of our terrific teammates, funny man. Um, he, he came in at half time and he said, "Hey, we're not out of this." And it was Lekas wouldn't say anything. He would never say anything in that sort of uh, forum. So for Lekas to say something, there was I, I don't know how many other players reacted to it, but I actually heard that thought. It might be, there might be something in this. Um, but I think the, the third quarter came and they kicked the first couple. And then Peter Everett gave away a 100-metre penalty at some stage. And I thought, oh, hang on a second. There might be something turning here. And then we got rolling. We kicked a couple of goals late in that, or midway through that third term. And they started to stop. And then you got blokes like Crawford who's just running all over them. you got Richie Vandenberg who wanted to kill people. Um, had Lekker running really hard at the wing. Anthony Rock was doing cool things. Nathan Thompson and he was brilliant. Nathan Thompson, were, 10th game. were dominating in the forward half. Joel Smith was running a muck across half back. Like, things just started to roll. And it was one of those games where momentum, and it took, we talk about momentum in footy a lot these days. Um, but that was, that was the most extraordinary feeling that I've ever had in a game where one side was totally dominant, 10 and a half, 63 points. 
the game was over for all intents and purposes, but then there was a massive shift and the team that was dominating couldn't get a hand on us and we just steamrolled them. It was remarkable that day. I remember Fish had a big say in it, um, but Dutchie and Tomo and you and Van de Zerken were the ones that really set things rolling that day. That was a remarkable uh, day. They, um, no, they ambushed us early. They just, they went hard at us. You know, they, they bash were us a bit. physical, you know. I, I still, even to this day, every time I run into Tim Watson, because uh, he was the, the he coach was. at the time. And obviously Spider Everett came to Hawthorne uh, a year or so later. Um, and when we spoke to him about that game, he said S. Crawford was highlighted on the board, you know, virtually take him out of the game or knock his head off if you can. And that's what I felt like in that first quarter. I'm like, oh, my God. they're, And that's when you could run off the line. And this is where half was – you could have guys running off half back, off the wing, trying to pick you off. Yet you still had to keep your eye on the footy, try and win the footy, and then make decisions from there. So back then, they could pick you off, you know, <laughs> and even, uh, you know, I can still remember Byron Pickett many times coming off the line and, you know, not necessarily looking for the footy. He wants to yeah. he wants to take someone out and make some physical impact. So they ambushed us, and they we were looking around. Our heads were turning everywhere. They're, like, they're coming from everywhere. So um, sometimes you just need... Some quiet time just to go, okay, <laughs> they've thrown everything at us. Let's just see if we can kick some goals, get a bit of momentum. But no way do you ever think you're coming back from there. No. Did you speak to Spider Everett about it when he went to Hawthorne? Yeah, yeah. I, that, that's how I, I knew that my name was heavily circled. What was um, going through there? Clubhouse at three-quarter time, though, when oh, the Hawks he, he were said, coming? He said at halftime, they were like, how good is this? This yeah. is unbelievable. You know, so they obviously... You know, they're happy with themselves, and rightly so. I'd be very happy. Boys, we're up. Ten goals at <laughs> half time. We're going well. Um, and that, that's the that's a great challenge with footy these days. Once, you know, is you go in at half time with a bit of a lead. How often do you always see in that third quarter the side that's been down a touch or struggling a touch, they always come out and show a bit of fight. You know, sometimes, or majority of times, if you look, you know, they win those quarters. Yeah. You know, they end up kicking two goals to one or whatever, but they find a way to win those quarters. So that that mindset at half time, if you if you think you're going okay, you know, watch out. The opposition are going to come because as soon as you're in that headspace, it often ends in a bit of a disaster. And that was a great thing about playing with him. Like he was never happy, never satisfied from start until the end of the game. Even if we won, sometimes he wasn't. But he would keep driving everything, the whole the standard of everything. He was such a competitor, like an animal. This bloke. Um, so having guys like him in your team in those moments are really good because they're not giving up. And, and they'll drag you with them. And that was one of the catalysts in that second half to get rolling. And you did kick two great goals. And the only thing better than one of the goals was the goal celebration oh, when you did it. the aeroplane and ran towards the crowd. And it really got the team up and about. <laughs> well, there's a, it was a great moment because it was one of the great Ruck-Rover combination moments. Paul Salmon, um, who I love working with in the in the Ruck, is awesome. Well, one of the great Tat Ruckman of all time most of his career of course at full forward at Essendon but he was something else as a ruckman and he got his chance at Hawthorne and we teed it up just as I was getting to that stoppage Andrew Thompson was playing on me um, from the Saints and it was forward 50 stuff for us and Fish has looked at me and I've just gone long wide so just long and, and wide and he's given me the, the nod so all he had to do was basically hold position and then just whack it out there. So I've got to time my run, and he's whacked it to the perfect spot. <laughs> and I've run onto it as if like it's the greatest play in the history of football. And then slammed it on my boot around the corner from 35, and it went straight through. It was never missing. Like, I couldn't have done that again if I tried. 
uh, get that goal to go so straight at that moment. And then I just felt, because we'd pulled off the, the the play was more than anything than the goal. It was pulling off the play was what I felt really happy about. And then I just got the yeah, I just got carried away. I got carried away, Nick. It's happened before. And it'll and, happen again. And the great Luke Hodge wrote back on Twitter saying, "Did you think to acknowledge the ruckman in the post goal celebration?" <laughs> well, no, we don't see that, but I did because fish. You can see in the footage of that game because it's on Fox Footy a bit as well these days. Uh, fish is doing this way and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I come back after I've celebrated and told the world how good I was. Um, I came back. <laughs> To Fish, he gave a massive high five and a hug, and there was that acknowledgement. Your mate Luke didn't see that because he's only very much a narrow-focused individual, Luke Hodge. Doesn't see the bigger picture. But it was one of those connection moments with your teammate that, that got me really excited, um, let alone the fact that it went through. And and he, he is right. Paul Salmon was incredible, uh, Ruckman. And Half and Fish had an unbelievable relationship. You know, they were great mates uh, off the field. But on the field, it was purely that. It's like just a... A look in a direction or, you know, wherever, and that was the communication that was needed. The rest of us at the time, they'd have their own language and we're like, <laughs> what's going on? What are we actually, what are we doing? So, but the, the good thing is <laughs> some of the times you don't want the teammates to know because everyone's going to go to their hit zone. Yeah, you're getting the You way. know, it's like, everyone, oh, hang on, I wanted to get there and try and get that. So, um, so it was good at times. And, you know, the great thing about fish Fish was great at self-appraisal. So we would come back into the middle of the ground to set up for the next bit of play and he would always ask for a compliment or yeah. say, did you see the crowd are yelling my name? <laughs> he would always do that. So we would be in the middle having a bit of a giggle before we actually get to get rolling again. And Whereas if that's seen today, you know, you're oh. back in, you're working your way back into the game, you're in the middle and you're having a bit of a laugh we would be smashed, especially on social media. They'd be, oh, these yeah. guys are getting ahead of themselves. They're taking, you know, not taking footy serious. But we couldn't help but laugh. And you throw Tony Woods in there, who is uh, run with all the time. So uh, the communication was always was always pretty good. My favourite story about fish. I need to just tell a story here. Um, just uh, you reminded me. We were playing Port Adelaide at the MCG, and he was the, he wanted to, footy was fun for him. He he was a beast of a compared to the two but he wanted to enjoy it and he knew that that was sort of my role too my gig too I wanted to be a part of that and, and Crawford's another one too Woodsy was a bit more serious bit of a nerd <laughs> <laughs> but as we were playing against Port Adelaide at, at the MCG uh, Southern Stand right half back going to the punt rating so scoreboard in city end going to the punt rating right half back out, out of sight it was a banjo line throw in and, and we're all getting a bit sloppy to get there. We must have come from somewhere far away to get to the boundary line and it took us a while to get there. And Fish is there early and he's yelling at me, Half, get here! And I said, all right, I'm, I'm coming, I'm coming. Well, I'll get there. And I wasn't there fast enough for him, apparently. He, he yelled again, Half, bloody get here! I said, all right, mate, I'm coming! And I was playing on um, Fabian Francis, I reckon, at the time. And he was looking at me going, what's going on here? And, and I get about 10 minutes away, he goes, Would you hurry up and come to me? I said, mate, I get up nice and close. I'm like, what's wrong? He just says, looks to me and goes, how am I looking? <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're looking good, big fella. What do you want to do? Just go right hip. I'm going to wrap it around. Okay. So he did it. Right hip. I wrapped around. We ended up getting an inside 50. We might have even got a goal out of it. But it was just that moment of, like, it was the world was the most serious place for him. And I thought I was going to get killed. And then, how am I looking? Because he, he just wanted some feedback. <laughs> 
We move ahead to 2001, and the Hawks reach the prelim final. 36 points down against your arch-rival Essendon, Ooh. and then you come storming back in the second half to just miss. What are your memories about that beautiful day at the MCG? From a weather perspective, it was beautiful, not so much why. the result. You wonder why I hate Essendon. You wonder <laughs> why. Um, oh, I remember that being a real... Oh, we started slow. They got all the free kicks and goals in the first quarter. I remember that. And that, that took a bit of the jam out of our donut, which wasn't helpful because they were a serious footy team. And we were really coming along at that stage, clearly to get to a prelim, um, and come off the back of a two really good finals wins to get to that point. Uh, but th- that we started slow and they got goals early and it was always catch up. Um, and it was a really hard grind. I remember that the, the second half when we started to roll, um, and Crody had that shot in the last quarter where he kicked it from outside 50, and he kicked that, or it might have been a point or two down, he hits the post. It looked like it was through. It was all the way, yeah, Yeah. and it just tailed late all the way. And he hits the post, and you think, oh, God, was that the chance? And they go down, and bloody Paul Barnard kicks a goal late. Um, Former Hawthorne player, we play with him when he's at the Hawks. And he kicks a goal late, and it just extends it, and you think, you know, the siren goes, oh, is that your chance? That's the, the first response was, is that our chance? Because they don't come around often. So why you got to celebrate any any victories in, in sport, let alone the AFL? Because they don't come around too often to win premierships or a chance to play in a grand final. And that was our, our first real look at it. But was it going to be the So I went immediately to next year and the year after, and is that going to be our only look? I was devastated with that game because we'd worked so hard and we'd, and we'd come so far as a footy team until we missed by that margin after being down so much early in the game was um, was a real kick in the guts that that hurt that one that hurt Shane. yeah absolutely and, and it's funny Paul Barnard ends up at Essendon he kicks that match winning goal you know and um you know, you think, oh, you know, he's not a bad fella, Barney. Good on you. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. But I, I can still remember when Ken Judge took over um, Hawthorne, the first day that we were there, he came in and he was just, he had the biggest baseball bat and he's just telling us how bad we are as a football club and how we've let the team down and um, we let the club down and the history of the club down. And he just, he went in hard and set the scene early. But I remember him having Paul Barnard up against the wall down a little hallway that we'd all oh, walk down. Yes. Like virtually going to punch him in the head saying, you know, it's not good enough. You're big and tough. And, but you know, I know that's all huff and puff and whatever. And then a couple of days later, it kicked him out of the club and traded him or moved him on. So, you know, you know, karma works in, you know, mysterious ways. And, and that was, I, I can still remember that. And then obviously Paul Barnard having that moment against Hawthorne, I'm like, that's weird. It's weird, the world, uh, the, the way the world works. And Paul Barnard obviously had that moment where, you know, I, I'm sure that he would have recalled that, that moment with Ken Judge. And then obviously having a way over the top of Hawthorne uh, with that winning goal, um, you know, you couldn't help but think, oh, good on you, Barney, well done. And unfortunately, that's over for us. And we probably, if we look at it pragmatically and realistically, probably would have got monstered by Brisbane the week after in that grand final had we played. Because they killed us through the year, I reckon, a couple of times. Killed us. It's those saline drips. (laughs) We couldn't afford them. We needed the drips. We couldn't afford them and they were doing it. It wasn't against the rules then. No. But, gee, it makes it half-time, you know, it, it makes a massive difference if you can it's a good point. replenish and refuel. I've never asked you this, so I'll be fascinated to get your thoughts from both it's of you. It's not about me, You've Nick, just made a prelim final, <laughs> and then the club trades Trent Crowd. Yes. Admittedly, you got the draft pick to get Luke Hodge, one of the greatest ever Hawks, but what were you thinking at the time losing a key player after just making a prelim final? 
Yeah, well, I thought they were idiots. That's what I thought. Um, because he was this super young talent and he was still really raw at that stage. And it had you been able to refine and, and sort of chisel him into the player we needed that time, he could have been could have been anything, an all-time great. So I thought they were idiots. Um, and you just hope that the kid coming in is going to be a fairly decent player if you're selling the farm. Because it wasn't just Crady, it was Luke McFarlane as well who went back home mm-hmm. and became a terrific player for Frio, who is... I think he's always homesick, so that was going to be the natural sort of course for him. But, but, Crady, but he, he still enjoyed Melbourne, though. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, oh, like, we'd put a lot of work into Luke McFarlane, who, you know, we could see had a lot of potential. He was so raw when he came across. He was playing schoolboy footy, and he was only playing a handful of games. So when you lose, you know, two key position players, two players who you know that have got so much more growth, and go, you have a look at the hit, uh, the career Luke McFarlane had with Fremantle yeah. um, during you know some tough years with Fremantle as well. He 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 had a bloody good career. So he's a star. Yeah, at, at the time it was what's going on. What have we done? You yeah. Know? And so we copped the short term hit for the long term success because you get Luke Hodge in. Yep. And Sam Mitchell's the other pick you take in that draft as well, which turns out to be two fairly handy additions to the history of the footy club. What do you remember about Luke Hodge? A little bit porking who rolled into the club. Did you ever envisage you going to be the superstar that he was? Uh, no, not from the first couple of years. Um, I, I knew he could play. Like, he could kick the footy like a mule. Oh, whoa. We just need to get it into his hands. But he was he was sloppy, wasn't he, physically? Like it was, and he was a bit injured too at, yeah, the, at the time, right. the groin injury. So he was probably sloppy. similar to half, you know, came in with an injury. It was going to take a bit of time. But he was a really charismatic kid, and I loved that about him. Like, he had a little, not a swagger, but he was just, he was just that cheeky confidence that he knew he was going to be okay. Um, so we, we just wanted to get him fit and get, have a look at him. And he ended up, he played a few games early in that, in that first year for him. Um, played forward a bit in that, that year, I reckon. Kicked a few snags. But I never thought he'd be the Luke Hodge that we know now. Like, that was, that was nowhere near it. Um, I just didn't think he had the makeup, but then he showed he showed everyone he showed why he was. They did sell the farm to to try and get him. And at the same time, Chris Judd just hit the ground running for the West Coast Eagles. Were you sitting back cringing, saying we've lost Crow to McFarlane and we've passed up on Judd? <laughs> I remember talking to a couple of players about this at the time about this whole Judd Ball Hodge thing, um, and then seeing Hodgie come in as the injured one, you think, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> We've got the cripple. <laughs> That's not good recruiting. And, and uh, he and copped it a fair bit from his teammates, Hodgie. You? you know, like <laughs> in, in, a, in a fun way, you know, but I knew it was affecting him, you know, because, you know, you, oh, Hodgie, geez, we've got the wrong person. You know? So after a while, you, that keeps getting said to you, even though you're doing it in a, a joking style. After a while, you know, he's, he's not enjoying this. He's, he just wants to get out and show what he can do. But yeah. obviously he was, he was stuck because of injury. So Juddy was certainly making an impact on the whole footy world, let alone West Coast. And we're sitting there going, bloody hell. Bloody hell. And we've got porridge guts over here. Don't <laughs> now, we just mentioned injuries, and unfortunately that was something that you got to know quite well over the next two years at Hawthorne. I did, yes. Yeah, no, it was a disaster, really. Um, groin and hernia issues. Osteitis pubis, the dreaded osteitis pubis that everyone on the planet had um, at, through those days, but no one has any more. But it must have been a vaccine for that, I reckon, somewhere <laughs> that we all got. Um, yeah, it was it was horrible. Every time it got to the point where that was sort of well, 2002, three, 25, 26. I should have been I should have been really humming, but I never got never got rolling because physically I just couldn't do what what he did. I couldn't. My body wouldn't stand up to what Crofts could, and it used to drive me bananas. It give me the real shits it did um, because I could see what he could do, and I, I'd, I'm not built like him. I'm a different breed to. 
mentally and physically to, to crawl. <laughs> Thank goodness. For you. <laughs> <laughs> mentally, we're very different. You're much stronger than I am. And physically, you're a beast as well. But I wanted to sort of have a chance to try. Um, and every time I pushed, I broke down. And it was a disaster. That, that, those last two years, 2002 and three, were very, very difficult because all I wanted to do was play. And I'd signed a big contract. I'd signed, not a big contract, a four-year contract um, at the start of 2000 and Oh, it must have been one. Um, so two and three were sort of years two and three of that. And and I was getting a bit of heat from the club on that because I'd signed the four-year deal and it was decent money at the time. Um, so I was copping some heat on that too. So that didn't go well. Um, in the end was probably the, the way the relationship broke down over those conversations and my inability to play. So they were getting shirty with you for being injured and being on good money at the time. Yeah. Yeah, that's in, the, in essence, that's that's what happened. And that's how we fell out of love with each other, effectively. That's I was copping heat for being injured and getting paid. And and that was – it's very easy to, um, for me to focus on, on just that element, but there was a whole lot going on at the club at the time. We weren't a happy place. Financially, we weren't very um, very well well put together. Um, club-wise, coaching-wise, board-wise, we were a bit, of, a bit all over the shop. And I think I was a little – I was a, an avenue for them to vent some of that frustration from a footy department perspective. So, I, I, yeah, I copped heaps from, from the hierarchy on, on – Who? Who's the hierarchy? Oh, people that don't need to be named at this stage because, um, yeah, we're all – I've moved on. I hope to tell the story, but I've moved on. Um, <laughs> but but when it, was, it was a funny time. Like, we weren't, we weren't happy. We were a crap club finishing bottom couple of spots on the ladder every year. Nothing really happening in our world. And living off the past, living off the glory of the past and, and trying to bring it together, but knowing that this crop was never going to be that crop. And that was hard for the club to understand and get their heads around, let alone we, we, we knew we were different. Um, but the club and the fans, they'd had such a golden era of, of footy and, and success, and we weren't that. Um, and it was a really traumatic and tumultuous time for the footy club, and I was just one of the little collateral damage players along the way. And uh, I think from a board and a management point of view, they want to blame someone else. They don't want to blame themselves, you know, and, and you only have to look through, you know, during the 90s, um, some of the draft picks they were horrendous. Like, nothing against some of the people, but from a football sense, you yeah. know, there were so many misses. And the, Hawthorne wasn't the only football club. There were so many football clubs that, you know, are drafting someone off, you know, getting a handball <laughs> after half time, you know, running through the middle. <laughs> so, mm, it's um, a different time. It, it was very different. And, you know, they were always like, even for a while, Nick Holland copped a fair bit because yeah. he was getting really well paid. And I'm like, is it, doesn't that mean he's got a really good manager who can actually, you know, get himself to a certain stage and he gets really well paid? So it was unfortunate that, you know, the club sort of had that against some players at times. If you do get injured, which players do get injured, um, we we're trying our best, you know, we we're training hard. If Daniel played today, he would have his own individual program. You know, he'd be looked after very different to me and everyone else, whereas... You're a midfielder, okay. You're in the midfield grip. Go and grab these bricks. Run around, <laughs> run around on the road. At, um, you know, under the train station and hook back around and and go and do this, lift this. We all were trained the same. Yeah. Whereas everyone's different. Everyone needs to be trained differently, which is what credit to the clubs do these days, which requires a lot more effort. But everyone was trained differently. Um, he did a lot of power lifting, which I reckon really helped half. But you know, we all should have been on individual programs mm. and different programs apart from the skills. Well, I remember when 
um, that sort of time too, Croft. You, you used to cop a bit of heat from the club for doing all that stuff you did in the TV, like the footy show and yeah. the House of Bulger and all that sort of, all that stuff. That we used to do yoga. We're yoga partners on a whatever morning we ever did yoga, um, and we talk about that stuff. And I hear your frustration talking about some of the challenges you faced through that time with the footy club and how they dealt with you. And you were the best player in the in the league. So a little old Fatso over here um, who's not playing and done decent whack. He's going to copper. Couple clip. Can we talk about those yoga sessions? Because we do <laughs> yoga every week, and we go down Bridge Road in in, in um, Richmond, and you know we would have trained hard that morning, and then we end up all sort of getting to one area, and then it was just a huge you know group stretching yoga session, and you'd always have a partner, um, but. I don't know. It was always after lunch, right? <laughs> it was next to you. Walk up the stairs, and there was a a, um, a, a little falafel place, a, 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 a bum cleaning business next. Oh, door. there was a yeah, colonic irrigation yeah. was up there too. Yeah, there's a falafel <laughs> place down left, and the and the colonic irrigation up top, and the fifty percent off uh, <laughs> jackets and suits downstairs underneath. So we're upstairs, and we do yoga, and, and yoga was great because we all don't stretch enough. You always feel so much better from doing a stretching session. And partner stretching for me is perfect. But it's after lunch. (laughs) Everyone's been running around. These footballers consume a lot of food for the energy. The amount of farting that would go on in these yoga sessions, it got to a stage where where (laughs) the yoga teacher had to say, no more farting. We're banning farting. In these yoga because it's so distracting. So this, it's peace and quiet. We're not meant to talk. And then, seriously, it was it was like it was organised. Off in the corner, then another corner, and over here, you're just thinking, how on earth can there be so much gas in one room? It, it was just so wrong. Well, it got worse than that because if that didn't happen, <laughs> if there was no natural gas, <laughs> we'd have players with stink bombs in their pocket and they'd crack oh, the stink bombs, which geez. were disgusting. And the poor old yoga teacher, one afternoon, just just took off, said, right, I'm out. And took off. Done. He couldn't yep. deal with it anymore. And, and the problem, Quinny, is, is, is when everyone's, you know, letting themselves, relieving themselves, <laughs> and then you see one player get up and quickly run off to the toilet holding in the back of his pants. You're like, oh, this is this is not a good situation to be too far. When you walked in here today, Daniel, did you think we'd be going down this path of the oh, podcast? I didn't think yoga was coming, but that's, I'm, I'm glad it did. I'm glad it Always did. Always felt better. That's a great memory, yoga, though. That is a great memory. <laughs> There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858. So you're at the Hawthorne Footy Club from 1995 to 2003 and you played 153 games. We're celebrating your career. Do you look back with any frustration, though, that the number was reduced because of the injuries? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. I think I played 137 in six years or something, or seven years. So I played a lot. I hadn't missed much at all when I was... When I was a younger fella, and then it all comes crashing down, and and it wasn't just—I mean, my whole career was evaporating in front of my eyes because I couldn't run, I couldn't get out of bed, um, I couldn't roll over, I couldn't cough, I couldn't sneeze, I couldn't do anything. So my whole career was evaporating. Not just my time at Hawthorne or playing footy, playing Hawthorne footy. I could see the end, and it was, I was twenty-five, 
I think this is not right. I, I, I can't have this. So yeah, I was I was petrified of what the future looked like, and I was I was really upset that it didn't. I wanted to be a one club player. I said that before. Like I'd signed a deal to be a ten year player at Hawthorne. That last deal was a four year deal. I want to be a 10-year player and then play the rest of my days at Hawthorne. That was what I always always planned once I got drafted. I could have gone to Port Adelaide, could have gone to Fremantle. And like Croft gets offered some other clubs, but I wanted to play at Hawthorne and be a Hawthorne player. So, yeah, I was filthy that that was happening. We talk about the mental side of the world these days. I think people are more open to talking about their feelings and whatnot. If you had your time again, do you think you might have spoken to someone about some of the feelings you had at the time and the anxiety and potentially it could have gone down a depression path if you have your world taken away from you so suddenly? Um, yeah, well, I used to have – Simon Lloyd was our, our psych at the time. He's these days the footy boss at Geelong, Maddie's brother and Brad's brother. Um, so, he, so I would talk to him a lot about that sort of stuff and how I was feeling. He, he was good just prodding and getting um, good reactions out of me and some honesty out of me. So I, I probably did without knowing that I was looking after my mental health. Um, but he was certainly a really important player in, in my life, important person in my life, and, and, and Beck, my wife's life, because how I would carry myself from footy back to home, I would uh, come home and I'd be a, a shocking human. So I used to drive her bananas that I was a shocking human at home when she was the one trying to support me the most. So he became a pretty important uh, factor of our life, Simon. So he was he was really handy at that time. And he, he was, you know, and we uh, we don't know a lot of stories, but he was he was worked a lot, you know, back <laughs> then. You know, these days they've got clubs have got four or five welfare people that they can tap into and and psychs and so forth. But Simon Lloyd, he was, you know, he was always working with some players, and not that I, I didn't even know, you know, from a half point of view, you know. Because there's pressure. We expect him to play well every week. We expect him to be our best player. Um, Second best. Well, you know, we expect him to play well all the time, which is just, you know, and you're getting tagged and you're having, you know, players try and stop you from doing what you need to do. It's not that easy, especially in a side that's struggling. It's Sometimes it can be impossible. So, um, you know, like back then... I'm sure we we used to hide it all, and it wasn't until Nathan Thompson virtually was the first to ever really mm. come out and say, oh, "I'm not good. I've got issues." And we none of us had any understanding, you know. And initially, first we thought, "I oh, just shake it off. Come on, get on with it," yeah. you know. Clip you around the head, let's go. But um, obviously, it was much more deep, deeper than that, and. You know, a lot of serious and bad thoughts were creeping in, and that's pretty much what I think sort of got the ball rolling in the AFL world from a mental space. Yeah, I remember. Like, I never got to that point during my playing days. Um, I don't think, but I, I always had counsel with with Simon, which was which was handy. But my biggest challenge was finishing footy. Yeah, and and what came with that because you you live your life and with this routine with this structure. And it's intense. Like the bubble is, it's, it's is like intense. A, I often say it's like a cult. It is not that I've ever been a part of a cult, but it, it, you are in, and that's it. And you get told that's what your life is. Yeah, and that life is and different. There's to every nothing other else. Else's. Yeah. That's your life. You got to make the most of it. Whereas there's so much more in the world. There is, but that's what happens. They try and brainwash you, which not in a bad way, but it's like you got to make the most of your opportunities. These don't come around all the time. So yeah, it's. It's a different space. Yeah, it was a, it was a shocking time when I retired because uh, I, I wanted. I was happy to retire. That was okay, um, but I, I didn't know life without it, and I hadn't set myself up through it. And that was looking back. Talk about looking back and doing things differently. I would have 
set myself up a bit differently. Financially? Now, financially was okay, just with life, just with yep. um, purpose. Purpose was the whole thing. So you go from all this routine and structure and intensity to nothing. But and in your defence, it came probably six years sooner than you anticipated. Yeah, but no, that's true from a, perhaps a setup point, but it just the, the, the void of not having that lifestyle and everything was sort of dictated, you were dictated to by the club and the diary was taken care of and all that sort of stuff. And then you you finish and there's no other, there's no 40 teammates rocking up on Monday morning at your house just to hang out for the next day or for the whole week. You got no, I didn't have a job at that stage. Um, so I had no purpose, I had no reason to get out of bed and often I wouldn't. Because you're just sitting there going, well, this what am I doing? My wife would go off to work and, you know. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really challenging time. For six months, I was a bit of a basket case. I remember Dad saying to me, because um, he could see what, what was happening, and he said, you just need some structure. Go get a job and work in a bank or something. But I hadn't got my head out of what footy was. And I, said, I remember saying to him, how's that going to replace the adrenaline of running out the MCG and playing in front of 50,000 people. I, I couldn't shift my, my focus from what life was, what I thought life was, to what it actually needed to be and what it really was. Um, so that was, a, that was a pivotal conversation in my, my post-football life, that one. But it's turned out all right. I've been talking rubbish for a little while since, and it's been okay. That's going super. Before we get to your post-footy exploits, we'll talk about 2004. You go to the Carlton Footy Club. Yes, how different or similar was walking through the doors at Carlton compared to Hawthorne? <laughs> Who was the coach then? The great Dennis Pagan. Oh, the Group 1 trainer. Group 1 winning trainer Dennis Pagan was the coach. Winner. Yep. Yeah, he sold me the dream. I was going to be an on-field assistant coach at the Blues, which was good. I was, that was pretty good. It was a funny story. Brett Johnson was one of our teammates back in, in that time, and, and I got traded to the Blues, um, whatever month it was in the 2003 year. And, but they wanted Jono. But Dennis wanted Jono. But because of the, the relationship between myself and Hawthorne at the time wasn't fantastic and they were pretty keen to punch me up if they needed to, <laughs> Dan, Carlton had said to Hawthorne, we want Brett Johnson. So Hawthorne had gone back and said, righto, you can have Brett Johnson, but you've got to bloody take Harford with him. <laughs> That's sort of how the deal came around. <laughs> Well, it didn't make me feel fantastic. <laughs> but then I sold a dream. Steak and went, knives, hey? Oh, well, that's what I've been called ever since. <laughs> I was a steak knife to the Brett Johnson deal. It's like that extra <laughs> pot. Those late night shows when you watch it, I get a pot and a pot and a pot and an extra couple of pots. So maybe you're the extra couple of pots. <laughs> oh, I'm the extra something. I'm the extra something. But it was a funny deal. Um, and Jono was very happy. And I didn't, and I didn't want to say no because I knew Jono wanted an opportunity. And I needed to get out. We fell out of love and that was cool. I needed to get out. It was very different though because that was the year they'd been the year before they'd been um, sanctioned for the draft tampering or the salary cap stuff salary cap stuff so they missed out on Goddard and Wells and had to re- all their draft picks and had to recycle all these players from other clubs so I got there and there's I think there was about 16 new players that year and about 12 of those were Jeez. recycled players from other clubs who were obviously or coming to the end um, busted like me or weren't getting in the other team so they're probably you know, run of the mills of average players anyway. But it was the best thing that happened to that group because we all had to band it together because we had no choice. We had half the team was, was has-beens or never was and then you had the rest of the squad that had been there at Carlton for a little while. And there's some serious players as part of that Carlton squad. Kudafidis, Camparelli, Lappin. You know, these guys were fantastic players. They bring in Nick Stevens as well, which was helpful. Um, but it was a different beast because it, it had to be because it was a, such a different blend of squad. And then Dennis is an intense character. 
um, who'd had great success, obviously, the Kangaroos, hadn't had that, that at Carlton, probably wasn't given that opportunity. And then he's trying to build this squad and work with a new group of players that probably needed to be coached a little bit differently, but he knew this way. And it was a real colliding of worlds, I reckon, that, that time at the Blues. Tell me about the relationship. brown paper bags? Like no brown papers. <laughs> no brown paper bags, which is very disappointing. I played at the Blues. I played for 60000 bucks. Um, and when did I get a game? Must have got about fifteen hundred bucks a game, maybe, maybe a bit more. I ended up with about eighty five grand for the year. That's uh, that's two thousand and four. Mm. My contract at Hawthorne was about four hundred. So a mini haircut, a little haircut, <laughs> a little yeah. trim. And what about your coach Dennis Pager at the time? You knew he loved his horses. Did you talk about horses? Yeah, that's how I felt. I got in with him because you you love your horses. You've always had a a great love of of the animal. Yeah, love the animal, love the beast, and love the industry. Um, and you and I have bred horses. We've raced horses and bred horses together. And that's how I got Dennis on side early, because I hooked him up with his daily breeding email that he didn't know anything about. Uh-huh. So I've hooked him up. I was chatting in his office one day and um, <laughs> and I said, do you, do you get this email from, oh, I can't remember the name of the website. He goes, what are you talking about, son? I said, ah, oh, because he was into his breeding and his racing. I said, oh, you need this. It's got all the latest info, all the breeding, the stallion <laughs> stuff. He goes, type it in for me, son. So I'm in his desk and typing his email and getting him hooked up to this newsletter, this daily newsletter, for this racing and breeding bloody Maybe that you cost him his coaching career because he was off with the horses. I he made him a millionaire. What was the relationship like between Dennis Pagan and Brendan Favola? <laughs> it was it was um, it was a volatile is probably the word we'd we'd use. He Brendan knew that Dennis needed him and Dennis knew that he needed Brendan. Uh, and there was an, al- an element of tolerance that he would and leeway that he would provide for Brendan, but there were also times where he would absolutely give it to him, and it was hilarious. I remember sitting on the bench one time, which wasn't uncommon at the Blues, um, and we're playing... Part of uh, the rotation. <laughs> there were no rotations back then, Crawl. <laughs> we're playing Geelong, I reckon, and, and Fev was having one of his days. He just couldn't be... Couldn't be asked. And, and he's carrying on like a pork chop and <laughs> was in the second quarter... <laughs> And, uh, and and Dennis drags him, gets the runner out and drags him. And, and he's straight on the phone. And uh, and I can just see Fev nodding and just not saying much. He goes, yep. Yeah, righto. Okay, no worries. Hands the phone back, sits down next to me. Five minutes later, the phone rings. Shane O'Sullivan, a great Hawthorne, uh, Hawthorne Carlton man, is on the bench <laughs> listening to Dennis on the end of it. It's Fev. It's the coach. So Fev gets up, gets on the phone. Yep. What do you want? Yeah, yeah. Yep, no, that's fair enough. Okay, cool. Hangs up, sits down again. I'm sitting again. What is going on here? And then a couple minutes later, the phone rings again. Shano, Fev. Fev gets on. <laughs> it's one of, one of the greats. Fev goes, no, no, no. You said when I'm ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> so I clearly been saying to him, let me know when you're ready, son. I'll get you back on. And Fev's just sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> He's just sitting there. So the halftime siren rings. Uh, it's fantastic. I was, I was sitting there in awe of this young man because he's only a young man at this time. I'm thinking, how good are you going? Uh, halftime come, rings and we go into the change rooms and we're getting belted by the cat. And Dennis storms in and we're all sitting up against the wall. He goes, you won't win this one, son. I'm the coach around here. You won't win this one. Because he didn't get back on before halftime. And he walks around the corner and... Fev just looks at us and goes, yes, I will. 
It's one of the great uh, moments of my footy career. He just is arrogantly just looks around and just goes, yes, I will. Oh my How to play out that day. Uh, we got pumped. We got pumped. I'm not sure I was on the field for long, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> oh, dear me. Wow. Never a dull moment with Feb. So you finish Good up fun. at the end of 2004, and you played some local footy after that. You spoke about the struggles adapting to the real world, but yep. then you made a great decision to get involved in the media. How did that start? Yeah, well, I was, I was lucky. Um, I, I'd never been shy in talking to people, as you could probably pick up today. Um, I was pretty happy to talk to people. I like the energy from people, so I was always into that sort of stuff. And through my footy career, which made a few of my teammates, um, the older generation, a little bit uh, upset at times, I was happy to be, talk to the media and have a bit of fun and take the mickey, as I said, and that wasn't the done thing. But I built up relationships through doing that, not with any desire or ap- outcome intended, but just got to know people, the journos and the media people and the camera guys and and they're just footy fans doing their job. And I... I enjoyed working with them. So I was happy to do a bit of that stuff. And then um, SEN, the 24-hour sports station, started in my year at Carlton in 2004. And they had needed 24 hours, seven days a week content. So I said to a couple of guys that were working there, if you ever need half an hour or something, do you want to come on? Um, I'm happy to come down. I just live up the road. I'll come on and just talk some rubbish with you if you want. So that's sort of how it started. I was the guy in this, in this chair answering questions and just talking footy with with Mark Doran it was, the great Mark Doran, um, at SCN during his nighttime shift. He used to do 8 till 12 or something. So I'd go in at 9 o'clock some nights and just talk footy for half an hour. And loved it. Didn't think anything was going to come of it, but just loved talking footy and having a bit of fun and, and being on the radio. Because radio is one of those great mediums that it's a bit different to TV. Well, certainly um, scripted and recorded TV, it's it's live and the adrenaline, if you make a mistake, you feel that. And the, the, the nature of live radio is a really cool thing. And that was the adrenaline fix that I didn't, had in footy that I didn't have in life. So I quite liked that, that little surge of adrenaline. Yeah, right. It was cool because um, I knew I had to be on. I had to perform. It was my job to perform for whatever that window was. So I really quite enjoyed that. Um, and then they kept calling me back. Um, eventually, I was, the, I was the fill-in half an hour, an hour guy at any show. So I used to work on all the shows and just do bits and pieces if I could. And then one day, Maxie... Mark Doran rang me at 11.27 on a, it was a Wednesday afternoon, I reckon it was, and he rings me and he says, because um, he'd moved to the midday shift at that stage, he says, oh, my wife's still on the labour, we're going to have the baby, I need you to do the show for me. And I'm sitting there going, oh, this is a four-hour show, <laughs> and I'd never been on the other side of the desk. I've always been the one answering the questions and, and not running a show, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and in my mind I'm going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But I said, yeah, I'll do it. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was petrified. I didn't know what was going to look like and how it was going to work. But I, I did one of those fake it till you make it sort of moments for me in the end. So I look back on it now. And I loved it. I, I was, my first segment, I've listened back to it once. I was supposed to go for about 15 minutes, went for six because I was speaking that fast. I was that wound up and that stressed. And I said I ran the time clock about twenty seven times. I reckon I the talkback number. I think I said that fifteen times. I tried to get out what was coming up in the show, and it was I was absolutely a mess, sweating like nothing before. <laughs> so I had this world's shortest first break, and then the producer came in and just talked me through a few things, and I settled down and got through the show, and I, it was the best thing ever. It was one of the great. Um, adrenaline rushes in my life. Playing footy was cool. Climbing mountains has been cool, but adrenaline rush of actually being on air for four hours by yourself, first ever time. Oh, man, that was unbelievable. 
<laughs> so that's that, and that's how it all started. Then I became the filling guy for anyone that was on holidays, and then Mark left and I was off for the afternoon shift and here we are. And you were there for a considerable time as well so it sounded like you just worked your way up and you got a huge fan base, you were loved with the SEN family but then that probably came to an end a little bit more suddenly than you envisaged as well. Yeah, there was changing management and, and structure in the, of the business and where they wanted to go and the management came up and said um, after a meeting one day, this is the end of the next contract, we're not going to renew it um, so you've got another, another 12 months. Um so that's that's our picture for you. Okay, oh, fair enough. Um, and I've never felt I've been entitled to anything. I've just fallen into things and worked my butt off and tried to stay there. Um, so no worries. And then RSN um, came knocking and said, "Would you like to be involved now in our breakfast program?" So that was so I had a year to go at SEN, and I said, "RSN, we're going to offer me two years." And I said, "Well, if you make it three, I'll I was going to chance my luck at SEN and see if I could change a few minds. Make it three, and I'll I'll come." Um, and I'd always wanted to do a breakfast show. That's sort of bre- radio is breakfast radio, isn't it? A lot of, a lot of um, markets. So breakfast radio is always something I'd I'd like to have done after I've found my feet in afternoon stuff. So that was going to give me that chance. Um, racing and sport works well with my life and and what I love. So. Yeah, I, I took the deal at, at RSN. And you've been an absolutely brilliant host on that RSN breakfast. And one skill that you have as a listener that I notice is you bring the best out of everyone. You sit back and you let everyone play to their strengths as well. Is that something that you taught yourself? Is it just a natural gift that you do have? Uh, I, no, I think one thing Kevin Bartlett said to me very early in my time at SEN has always rung true with me. Don't handball. Don't handball. It's a fad. <laughs> it'll never catch on. So that was the first thing. So I never did. Uh, the second thing was always make your guests the star it's because they hear enough from you you don't need to be the star you'll be around for long enough and they'll work out whether or not you're any good uh, sooner rather than later but always make your guests the star and I reckon that is if you're a host of anything if you're not making your guests the star you're shortchanging everyone so I've, I've really paid attention to that it's the greatest piece of advice I've had in my professional career make your guests the star so that's, that's what I try and do I, I want to make the people who I work with I want to make them um, really enjoy coming in and working with me, but also feel like they're a really valued and important part of what what I am, am a part of. So that's that's the you can blame Kevin Bartlett for that. <laughs> and when you when you do listen in, you know it, it seems like you're all getting along, having a great time, and you know just guys and girls just hanging out. Um, whenever I do tune in, the, um, the the show with SCN, you had Richo on there for a while. Jason well. Richardson, and yes. Rita, did you do yeah, something with Rita? Yeah, we had Fridays you, with Richo and Rita. You had a great little segment there, which was extremely popular, but it just just makes sense. It just keeps evolving and building. So it's very hard to build a loyal audience, especially in radio, because everyone's got an opinion. <laughs> so yeah, it does amaze me at times what management does, you know, when they think things are working and then it's like, oh no, we're going to reinvent the wheel. Uh, it's a bit crazy, but he's always, Daniel Hufford's always had an unbelievably natural talent to talk and communicate. Um, even at Hawthorne used to do some of the hosting, um, you know, even though it was, you know, from the older players, like, what's he doing that for? Um, very much in the, in the same mould as me being out there and doing things. So, but always very, very natural talent. And and he's married that with hard work and it's no fluke that things are progressing really well. You know, he's he's putting a lot of work in, but also, as you said, Quinny, um, he the way that he interviews everyone and brings everyone to life, it's, it's a gift. It's it's not something that you know you just flick your fingers and or click your fingers and hope things are going to happen. So he's obviously worked at that, and he's got something going really, really well. 
And you're a busy man as well. You coach the AFLW Carlton team, which has gone very successfully the last couple of years, just nearly won a premiership. How did you get into that? And how different has that been your involvement with the men's footy? Uh, I got into it. I was in Vietnam on a holiday with my family and the general manager of women's footy at Collingwood I tell you what, this radio must pay pretty well if you're sending your family to Vietnam. Or or not well enough if he needs to have another full-time job. Well, that's right. That's that's more the point back here, Crawford. Um, No, not not enough. It's one of those um, luxury escapes deals. Beck loves it. She's she's all over that stuff. One day we'll travel again. It'll be great. So he rang me and we're on – well, Facebook messaged me. In fact, he was. I need to talk to you. And then I said, just FaceTime me. So he rang me. He FaceTime me. He said, I need you. I want to come back. When you come back, I want you to come and talk about being an assistant coach with us at Collingwood in the AFLW. It was season two of the AFLW. And I just finished 10 years of local footy coaching. The kids were getting a bit older. And Beck had said, if if, if you're thinking about umming and about coaching again next year, we'd probably like to have you around the house a bit more after 10 years coaching because local footy is hardcore. It's 11 months of the year and it's you do everything. So you, you're a busy person. You coach local yeah, footy. Not just a coach, eh? No, you're, you're, you're everything. The, you're the president, you're match committee, you're recruiting yeah. Yeah. and the players want to just talk to you. So it's All of them just want to talk to the coach. It's like, there goes your time. Yeah, it's a busy job, local footy coaching. So anyone out there doing it, good luck to you. It's a tough job. Uh, so I'd, I had planned on staying away from coaching for a little while and then got this message from, from Maddie And um, I said, oh, I'm taking some time at the moment. I'm on holidays. I'll, I'll give you a buzz when I get back and we might talk about it. And Beck, I said to Beck, um, just got a call from a guy at Colin who wants me to coach the women's program. Assistant coach, she goes. Why wouldn't you do that? I'm thinking. Hang on a second. Hang, hang on. You, you just told me to stop and finish. So who are you? Was Arthur and Martha sort of stuff? I and think Bex thought about this. Well, said, no, I don't want. I don't want you around too much. <laughs> well, I that like might have been the point. For the day. That <laughs> might have been the point. She goes. Why wouldn't you do that? And as soon as she said that, I got straight back on the phone. I said, I'll come and see you. And I'll. I'd love to have a chat about it. And then interviewed for it and and got the job um, under Wayne Seekman at the Magpies, and had no knew nothing about women's footy. Coached men's footy for 10 years, played for 10 years um, in the AFL. Nothing about women's footy. I'd seen the first year, obviously, on the TV and some of the, the news packages and the newspaper and followed it a little bit because it was brand new and shiny, um, but I didn't know anything about it. But I got in there and within two weeks I was hooked. My whole perspective on footy had changed and what it was and what it could be and what it meant to people and the opportunity this, this new competition was providing for hopefully, a couple hundred years of, of women's players. Um, and I was hooked. Their, their, their thirst for knowledge, their willingness to l- listen and learn, their just want to be a part of it was so intoxicating that I was hooked and fell in love with it. And then how did you get the Carlton job? Uh, well, I'd, the, the guy who was coaching, Damien Keeping, uh, was let go by the Blues and I enjoyed it that much that... I thought I wouldn't mind running my own program and seeing what, what we can do. Um, so I, I applied. I rang Andy McKay, and I, who was the footy manager at the time. Funnily enough, my first opponent. <laughs> uh, swings around about, full circle. Did you say that to him? Well, well, he knew. He, he knocked on me you out too one day. At, oh, did he? At, at, oh, so he owed you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't mean it was all fair, but he just he clubbed me. It's never fair. Uh, no, he knew what he was doing. You're right. <laughs> malicious sort of stuff um, so I rang him and I said I'd like to apply for the job so I went through the process and sat in front of the board well the committee of was him and Kane Little the CEO and Juddy um, Kate Jenkins who was the footy director at the time might have been somebody else I might have just been the four of them so I went through the process I presented I'd never presented um, a coaching application before we don't do that in local footy as such so a PowerPoint presentation PowerPoint presentation you, yeah. yeah I did good didn't do any game plans I just told them about 
me. You can't give away too much. Well, that's like, what I said. That's the thing is you go, yeah, you can't go in there and go, this is everything I'm going to do. This is my new whiz-bang game plan and this is how it's going to roll out. Yeah. Because then they go, the oh, half, we're not going to take your job, but we like the way that, <laughs> that ball flows through the middle there. We're going to take that. Yeah, so I went through that and I got it. And, and uh, I loved it. I, I just, I love the world of women's footy and the opportunity it provides and the energy in that in that community because it is a very different community to the men's um, footy world. But I've, I've really embraced it and they've embraced me and it's been a, a life-changing experience, I must admit. The biggest difference I've noticed from taking the kids to games is just how positive it is. At halftime, my daughter Olivia will stand on the fence. They'll all come and give her a high five, and the team's down by six or seven goals. <laughs> and you just wouldn't see that in the men's game. <laughs> and that sometimes, from an old-school <laughs> football man, that sometimes drives me bananas. <laughs> I'm, sitting, I'm, just, I'm still working with that stuff. I'm coming around to that stuff. But it is. That's that's what they do. They play. It's a, there's a real joy in the women's competition. And, yes, yeah, competitive, absolutely, and everyone wants to win. But these, it's not life and death. And because it's only part time, which is helpful, uh, with that framework, I reckon. Um, but it's not life and death. It's footy, and they compete really hard, and they try really hard. But they're not dying if they lose. Like it's okay. Um, and there's an element of the W competition that I reckon the men's could bring into their world too, to ease some of the tension and the stress in in that world, um, which I think would be a benefit. But you're right. And well, like it was a story last year. Last year. Oh, I can't remember. They've all moulded into one through this invite, this COVID stuff. Um, we played at Adelaide. We'd never beaten Adelaide. The club had never beaten Adelaide, and we we're playing in Adelaide. Is that in the grand final? No, sorry, it was the year after. So that was 2020. It was. So they'd monsters, monsters us in the grand final, absolute monsters. So the best team in it. So they should have. Um, and we go over there again to play them. They were coming off the the top of the cliff a little bit, um, and and we never beaten them. And I was a bit stressed about it because I wanted them to perform really well for them. I wanted them to know that they could. One of those coaching sort of moments. I need you to believe you can, and, and you can, and you and you could. <laughs> we come back in from the on-ground warm-up, and it's my little chance to do the not sort of sixty-second rara. Mm-hmm. So I do my rara, and then there's two or three minutes before they run out, and all of a sudden there's this speaker box, cassette player thing, or whatever they Yui Boom, some digital music thing, music. speaker, yep. and they've put the music on, and it was Nutbush. <laughs> yes. So, so Tina's rocking out to Nutbush on the speaker, and I'm stressed about the game that's coming up. And then all of a sudden, these lines start to form in the change rooms, and I've got 15 of the girls doing the bloody Nutbush. You surely you joined in? No, I'm stressed, man. I'm looking around, going, "Does anyone else see a problem with this?" Come on, you, you're we're doing the Nutbush, mate. We've got to go out and beat Adelaide. And we've got pants torn from last year in the grand final. I know, final. coach, is a stressful thing, but <laughs> you're that type of coach that would do a couple of moves. With oh, well, uh, when, they, on, when they left, when the music was still going, I got a few in. But, <laughs> but I'm sitting here. What the hell is going on? Where are they? Where are they? Imagine Ken Judge coaching us and us doing the Nutbush before we are just about to run out. Not, under not the a great ending. <laughs> not a great ending. But how did they go? They won. They played out of their skin and they won. So that was a very big lesson for me about yep. um, letting people build up the way they need to without the false bravado of having to try and kill everyone out there and all that. So it was a very big lesson for me. And it was a as a symbol of what the AFLW is. They don't need to – it's not about killing and death and being monsters. It's about playing really good footy and doing it in a really joyous way. You've coached successfully in the AFLW. You've coached successfully in local footy. Would you see yourself ever moving across to coach in the AFL system? Well, then I couldn't have any other job. I couldn't work on the radio. I couldn't do this yeah, sort of so stuff. I hey, I'll give you some advice. Don't go there. No, I, I no, so just don't do it. Short answer is I don't. I, I like my life. I like my balance sure, of my life. Sure, you're very capable of doing it, but don't do it. 
I've, I've got a good thing going at the moment and until such time as I get stacked from all of those, which is, look, let's be honest, could be just around the corner. Um, I'm, I'm happy with my lot in life. I've, I've got a pretty good balance. It's pretty well spread out. As, as a coach, um, especially with the, the AFLW site, ever raised the voice, ever given a real rev up, oh, yeah. ever been angry? Yeah, I got a couple of – I gave one in my first year. Um, we were down at halftime in Geelong, came out and played the best third quarter we've ever played, although we kicked 2-7, which – didn't help us. We ended up losing that game by a point or so. Um, but we played really well, so I got a response. And then <laughs> I gave him a good cook um, at quarter time last year against Richmond. Richmond kicked three or four goals in the first quarter. Hadn't won a game in their history to that point. And we're down by three goals at quarter time. And oh, I'm fuming. <laughs> so I get Play out. that nut push. Play <laughs> the nut push. <laughs> so I get – and I don't do it very often. So they know that when I'm when – I'm, Serious, I'm I'm serious, um, and I go out there. I give him a good cook. It gets your heads in the game, and 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 with a real angry dad tone. And so they knew I was serious. And so we turn things around from there. I don't do it too often because yeah. that's not what it's not what they need. Not what anyone needs. I don't think to be yelled and screamed at too often. Um, but sometimes you just got to sharpen sharpen things up a bit. Playing at the Adelaide Oval. You got to zone space really well. I reckon the nut bush is talking <laughs> <laughs> spatial awareness <laughs> and just being in time with each other. There, there is something, definitely something in that. So, <laughs> as a coach, are you what type of message? Just as you said, you just want a minute to give a message. Do you tell stories? Do you what do you do to motivate them? I'm sure they're highly motivated anyway. But you know, some of your old coaches used to you know bring out stories, uh, Alan. Jeans famously spoke about sausages, sausages and somehow made sausages motivated, uh, motivational. Um, <laughs> just the way you can cook them, you know, boil them and all that stuff. So, do you do you have a little story or yep. or, or something that you say? Yeah, I'm a storyteller at the a, at the main meeting, not the the last little rah rah bit. We'll try and link some story into what we've done, what we're doing, where we're going, um, and and I think the girls like that. I think anyone likes yeah. that. A good a story well told. Is, is quite engaging and that's all you want to do you're just trying to engage the group in those moments so yeah storytelling does that I like to do that a bit and do, so, do you think um, do you think all your coaching virtually gets done at the start of the week you know get the head right get the message through what you need to do and that sort of sets you on that path whereas that first training session you have where gee there's a bit too much nut bush going on here or whatever <laughs> It has a flow-on effect at times. Yeah. We like to get most of our stuff done. We only train twice a week before the captain's run, so it's really only two sessions a week. Um, so we need to have the, the full understanding of what happened and then the plan for the next week. And then that creates, you'd know, through this. Once you've got a plan, you've got confidence. You can get some confidence because you can sell the plan and then you can train the plan and then all of a sudden the group understands what it might look like. So game day is just about re- reinforcing that stuff with a little bit of energy thrown in. That's, that's the way I go about it. Now, Victoria's unemployment rate is 4.4% if Daniel <laughs> Harford retired this afternoon. That could be cured because at the moment, you're not only coaching the <laughs> AFLW team, you're dominating RSN, hosting the breakfast show, you're on 3RW on the weekends, and then you jump on Fox footy as well for some AFLW you stuff. How on earth do you have the time to do it? And how do you have the energy? Because you're so positive, you're so energetic. Walk me through your schedule. When do you go to bed? <laughs> when do you wake up? Because it's quite extraordinary. Uh, well, it has, it's seasonal. It's a bit seasonal. So it's Sometimes I'm really busy, sometimes I'm not very busy at all. But the whole Brecky Radio thing is a disaster for my life. Because <laughs> I was, in my footy days and post-retirement, I was going to bed at midnight for 20 years, since I was probably 15. Going to bed at midnight for 20 years. So getting up to do Brecky at 4.30, it's, it's bad for business. 
it's very bad for business. So I, I do that now, and I, I go to bed whenever I go to bed. It's probably normally about 10 or 11 o'clock, um, and get up and try, try and get six hours in. Very rarely does it happen, but try and get six hours in. Um, and then come home and have a bit of a snooze for f- half an hour or so if I can, and then find whatever it is I need to be doing that day. If it's footy with the girls, I'm planning and getting the training early and doing what I need to do. If it's if it's off-season with the, with the AFLW, the afternoons are actually pretty cruisy, um, depending on on what the kids are up to. So you, my wife works full-time, so I'm dad as well in the afternoons when the kids are around from from school. So it's, it's busy-ish, but it's... As, as the great Tommy Hafey used to say, every day is a great day. Try missing one. Are you are you a, <laughs> are you a dad like Quinny who just hands over the iPad and says, "There you go, kids." No, no. Uh, well, well, every time I've seen well, you with the kids, it's always there. Yeah, the because iPad. we're doing a podcast <laughs> together. I gotta keep it. <laughs> Look at him. My He's kids are a bit older. My kids are seventeen and fifteen, fourteen, so they're they're a bit older. They don't need the iPads. They're on the they're on their laptops and bloody Snapchat and all that stuff on their phones. So it's hard to get the phones off them. Is the mm. is the bloody true story? But no, they're pretty good. What about the um, AFL world at the moment, um, heading towards the finals? But is there a coach there that you just really admire? You just think, wow, what a what a wonderful coach, always sort of ahead of the game, always trying to change things and, and do things a bit differently. Is there any one stands out or? Oh, Clarko's the standout. Um, um, I've not not with Hawthorne colours I'm on, but I think Clarko's the standout for the guy that keeps evolving and changing and making groups capable. I mean, he's he's phenomenal. Um, so he's the one, yeah, I absolutely love to watch. But John Longmire's the one that I've yeah. I've always admired. Like, what he's done at Sydney, um, it was a really smooth handover, obviously, with Ruzi, but what he's done with Sydney and players that have been okay elsewhere all of a sudden become stars at Sydney, like players who come to the Melbourne Storm from other clubs in the NRL, they just become stars. So there's something in that, and that's that's from leadership. That's not just culture. That's leadership from what Jalomai does. So I really admire him, and then the ability for him to change a whole plan in 12 months with a really young group and be finals bound. Now I think that's that's the coach of performance of the year. So he's a guy that I, I really like watching as well. Luke Beveridge too does some quirky things, um, and I like listening to his press conferences. He's a funny dude. <laughs> I'm all all about. It's like stuff. he's ready to punch on with someone. He just he? yeah. You get that look every like, now and then in his eyes. He's just he's waiting for someone to say something so he can launch. He needs to do some nut push. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and what about um, you know from a premiership point of view? Is there any team that you're leading towards? I'm on the D at the moment. Yeah, I think it's good, aren't they? Yeah, Porter coming. Um, Porter are, are a bit of a watch. I was on them early, but they had that flat spot, so I jumped off. But the Ds are healthy and they're confident and they seem to have a, a game that's designed for, for September. It's quite bash and crash, quite physical, but quite, quite direct. Um, power players at either end of the ground. Obviously, around the contest, they're really good. I'm concerned about Tom Stewart and the Cats now, um, what that does to them. He's such an important part of their game. The Bulldogs Defenders. We can replace defenders. No, not those ones. Not those <laughs> ones. They're pretty good, those ones. The Bulldogs' forward line um, is a concern at the moment. They're not scoring enough for my liking. Port Adelaide are coming, and Brisbane's last couple of weeks suggest that if they can sneak into the top four, they'll be a threat too. So, but I'm on the Ds. I reckon they've been good enough for long enough, and they've got a game built for September. Put Dangerfield half back. Try something a bit different. And what and what about, um, obviously, the Blues at the moment? There's so much uncertainty, and I know that you try and stay away from it and separate yourself as much as possible, but... You know, you know, this well, we haven't heard, but we don't know what's happening with the coach, and I feel sorry for David Teague. Um, yeah, you know, there, there looks like there might be some change. Yeah, well, there will be change. What it looks like, um, we're not quite sure yet. But I, I feel sorry for Teague. Like he did a hell of a job coming in 2019 um, in the back end of the year to, to guide things through and and set, reset the tone a bit. Um, 
picking up from a coach who got the sack, which is never easy to do in any level of footy. And then 2020, his first full year, he's hit with COVID impairments that he's not able to get the group together for the whole pre-season effectively. They train in small groups. How do you instill a culture and a plan amongst that? Um, and then he's gone through it again this year with more COVID stuff. So for a young coach, an inexperienced coach, to have to go through all that and be judged as as he's an experienced coach, I, I don't think that's fair. Um, but that's the footy world, mate. We, we know that's it's ruthless. If you don't win, you're under the pump. Um, so there's been some elements that, you know, I would have liked him to have changed a bit from a system perspective, but he's, I don't think he's had a real good run at it. So I, I do feel fatigue, um, and perhaps the support he's had through the journey and the opportunity he's had through the journey, and certainly the scrutiny he's had for a guy that's been through what he's been through has been unfair. But the game's not fair. Um, so it's once you sign the dotted line that you're a part of it, you know they're going to come for you at some stage, and there's a, there's a bullet with your name on it somewhere, and it will get you eventually. It's just a matter of when. Well, Alistair Clarkson won three premierships in a row, and then the following year they drop off a touch, and they say, time for him to move on. Yeah. I'm like, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? <laughs> Hang on. That's a bit harsh. You know, you know we're very quick to try and just change <laughs> stuff in, particularly media, the footy media. We're very quick to try and just offload people and end careers. Uh, I, I don't like that element of it, I must admit. Having lived through it as a player and, and being some level of coach in the industry, I, I don't like that. We've loved having a chat to you today, Daniel Harford. As per usual, John Holdsworth, a big thanks for your help and the great Trent Langscale assisted with some of the research. Did and he? that's why it's gone so well today. Did we do research. And we are going to finish with three of the hard-hitting questions right. I'd like to. <laughs> Best sledge you ever heard on the footy field. Who's this? James Hurd. Um, was playing on me one day. <laughs> and, he, and he looked around to one of his teammates and he said, who's this pointing at me? Uh, that hurt. But no, but you know what? I, don't reckon, hurt, a, I reckon there's a bit of truth in that. <laughs> I, I reckon he's that type of player. I don't think he would have researched everyone that he'd come up against. And uh, he was Shane probably legitimately going, Another Essendon hatred. <laughs> there you go. It's all coming through. <laughs> Who's this? God, that hurt. If, if you saw him walking down the street now, the great James Hurt, yes. do you reckon he'd go... Daniel Halford. Uh, he might did, have, do you reckon he'd have a double look and go? <laughs> he might have some a better opportunity to, to know who I was this time it's around. Like, <laughs> Best sledge you ever delivered. Uh, Vaguely recall Peter oh, Riccardi hey, being pointed to the bench one day. He oh. was, uh, Daniel Halford was very, <laughs> was very good on the lip. He was unbelievable <laughs> on the lip in a, a real sarcastic but fun way. It was never sort of in a vicious <laughs> way, but always... Very animated, and you knew that he was around, especially when we were up and about. Yeah, well, we played that day at Geelong where we sent – he was on Ronnie Burns and I was on Peter Riccardi, and we had a good day. And we were up and about. We were arrogant that day, Shane. We shouldn't have said what we said. The best ledge I gave was at local footy. It was a local footy game. I was playing out at Blackburn for the Mighty Ball and Tigers, and I'd, I was on the boundary line amongst the ferals. Like, the ferals are right next to me. At Blackburn, they are feral out there. Hello to everyone in Blackburn. Ah, they're feral, the footy supporters. They know it too. They love it. And Ball and Blackburn had this thing. And I've got this shot in the left, left sort of half-forward flank um, for goal. And the game was tight, and I needed to kick it. And they're into it. And it was some of the best stuff, like <laughs> just aggressive local footy stuff. And I sort of did love that stuff. So I go back and I slot it, like unbelievable kick, ridiculously good. <laughs> and so I slot it. And then so I turn around and do the big the goal umpire signal to them. And, they, and then they come at me again. Yep. And they're yelling at me. And there's a bit of a brawl comes from all the players. The Blackburn blokes are into me. So my blokes are helping me out. And it's on. And then I sneak out from underneath the rubble at one stage. And there's this lady who yells out over the fence, you're an idiot number five. 
<laughs> and I turned around with this very cocky yeah. look on my face. I said, don't pretend you don't know my name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's a bit of a contrast to the who's this, who's this from Hurdy. You shouldn't know my name. <laughs> that's very good. good. Favourite footy memory? Uh, oh, there's lots of them. There's lots of them. My favourite well, one was, was entering the arena for my, one of my favourites for my first game. Um, the State of Origin game I played in 97 was an unbelievable experience. And then that, that, that game at, um, in Adelaide where we won the final against Port Adelaide up against the odds, that was yeah, probably it. Biggest footy regret? Footy regret. Oh, not not going to the Swans. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to the Swans. I'm not going to Frio. We're living not. on the harbour right now. I could have gone to Frio for four years with Chris Connolly just before oh, I got the boot from Hawthorne, um, but they changed their recruiting policy. No one over 25 was coming in. So that was disappointing. Um, no, nah, I don't have any regrets. I don't. Things that could have happened might have, but no, I don't have any regrets. I would have loved to have been able to survive if the physical test like Croft. I just couldn't. And so I, I do think about what might have been if I could have been could have had that body and that mindset and what might have been, but I didn't. We often point to Crawford and say we want that body. Well, not not at the moment, no. <laughs> Too many pies of postcards. Um, and now what about um, footy trips? You were you a part of the footy trip that went to with the Hawks to um, went to America, went to the Super Bowl, and um, Did we go to the Super Bowl or just a couple of games. I went to a oh, not not the Super Bowl, but went to a the NFL. Game, yeah, 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 but yeah. then you. Had an opportunity to go out into the middle, and you were yeah, the halftime Philly. entertainment. Yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, so we were the halftime show at the Philadelphia Eagles Detroit Lions game because Ian Dicker had a great connection over there with um, Green Bay, didn't he? Yeah, and then somehow he got through to f- someone in Philly. So we're at Philadelphia Stadium for the Eagles and the and the Lions. We we're in the ho- same hotel as the Lions, staying in the same hotel, and um, Barry Sanders is another great story. <laughs> Barry Sanders is walking through the hotel for you and I, because I love Barry Sanders. He was a machine. So I go up and a bit floggish of me as a young man asked for his autograph. He just looked at me and goes, nah, man. Uh, so that hurt my heart a bit. <laughs> he, just he just, it was the hand, it was the turn away and nah, man. It was very annoying. I just, and I never asked for autographs from anyone. Wow. So I was annoyed by that. But we're on, on field. We're, we're the halftime entertainment. Hawthorne sort of football club and on exhibition. A, on a footy trip. On a on footy the drink, trip. So they're half tanked. <laughs> pol- and they've let these footballers run out of the field. With gridirons, because we didn't take any footies. <laughs> so we're doing this exhibition with NFL footballs, gridirons. And and all the fans are saying, is this like soccer? Over the, over the hoardings. No, mate. It's Aussie rules. So we're into them because we we're half cut anyway. And we're just kicking the ball around. And then we did this passage of play. And I got involved in this. Yeah. This oh, was cool. Is this where you were taking a specky? I took a specky back, deep in defence, over one of my teammates. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> and then played on. And then started bouncing down the sideline, all the way, dodging and weaving players. I'm getting – the guys are catching on pretty quick. They're getting blocks on and cutting a path for me. So I'm dodging back in the middle and getting all the way up the field. I'm bouncing this ball and it's coming back. So that was a big start for me. And then I get to about 25 yards out and I kick it and it goes through the uprights. And the crowd goes up. <laughs> it's one of the great moments. And I'm just doing this one, high five of the world, because I'm having the best time ever. And, uh, then, and we got shot, ushered off the field very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it was an unusual occasion. It was a very unusual footage. Did that Barry one. Sanders come and apologise after that? Well, he should have. After that uh, snag from 25. Is he related to Ed Sanders? No, it was he on The Simpsons. 
No, who, who am I ne- thinking Ned, of? Ned oh, Flanders. Ned, Ned. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That's the best possible way to wrap up this podcast. I want to do my intro again. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Welcome, Daniel Harford. Yes. Harford, it's been great fun chatting today. Well done on everything you achieved on the footy field and everything you've achieved post-footy. Good on you, boys. A pleasure to be a part of it. Good on you, Daniel. Thank you, Shane. There's a chill in the air, but the footy's heating up. And so is Tab's Same Game Multi, where you can combine your favourite AFL markets, like head-to-head, anytime goal scorer and total disposals, all in the one bet to get bigger odds. It's available all season long on the Tab app and website. Build your AFL Same Game Multi with Tab today. Tab, long may we play. Available online for Tab account customers only. Gamble responsibly. Call Gambler's Help, 1-800-858-858.